All right, we're, we're on. All right, so I got Jack King here. Jack King is former CTO and CIO the state of Illinois, and then what, state of Florida, too? No, actually, it was uh, Broward Health, which is one of the okay. uh, hospital districts down in Florida. I was the chief technology officer for the last uh, year and a half down at Broward Health up until this summer. Okay, so, like, for anybody that, you know, we, we've talked a couple times before this, once on the phone, and then once a little bit last night. Um, like, explain, like, what that entails. And, like I like, you know, I saw your tweet today with the, you know, timeline for the vaccine sort of a thing. Yeah. And uh, so like you, you're, you spend a lot of your time dealing with like healthcare and the data that goes on with that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. A little bit of background. Um, you know, I've been in healthcare for the best part of, I'd say the last 18, 19 years. Uh, I started off in technology over in financial services and banking, worked for Arthur Anderson. Everybody remembers the infamous uh, Arthur Anderson. When they closed the Chicago office, I went to work at Northwestern Memorial downtown. So that was my first foray into applying technology uh, in the healthcare setting. And this is when you still had to argue with a, with a lot of the providers around whether or not they should use a chart with a pen and paper or use the computer. So I've kind of uh, been, I guess, fortunate enough to grow up in that environment and watch it continue to mature and progress and uh, really had a front row seat as a pandemic kind of broke out here in how technology played a big role in um, helping people better understand the data as you uh, you and I spoke very briefly about I think it's there's never been a better or worse time to be the person with the data right because everybody's going to question it and everybody's going to have an opinion on it uh, but for as many challenges as it provides I think it's uh, when you look at the accelerated uh, timelines like you just referred to on that tweet from today uh, you have to step back and marvel at what's been done in a relatively short amount of time to come up with an effective vaccine. So yeah, all good stuff and uh, all data-driven and evidence-based, which uh, we all have to like. I'm a big fan of science. So. Yeah, so the, the pandemic's been, like for most people, mostly awful. But uh, there's going to be, with everything that we've ever gone through, there's gonna be big things that come out of it as far as that go. I'm hoping you know, I hope for more all the time. I am the most anti-Paul Bunyan, like, you know, I remember hearing the Paul Bunyan story when I was a kid. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know, that someone thought they could cut down more trees than the, you know, the, the saws or whatever like that. And then I never really put it until I got to be older. And I'm like, oh my God, things move so slow. It's driving me nuts. Um, and then so many people resist change so hard. It's insane. But it's not like I've made a point of everyone I talked to not on the podcast, just in general, like, you know, about what they're doing. So every homeowner we work for, like, how is your business changing because of this pandemic? And I would hope that we could start to leave things behind us, like traffic jams and dumbass things where you don't need to go to a place to go to work. Right. But I hear from people that say that their bosses want to look over their shoulder. I think some of it has to do with we are there's way too many businesses in this country that are unhealthy due to the current government system that we have too, that pretty much coddles business. And we have, we're way too administrator heavy. We, we have way too many. If you go in a hospital, there's so many VPs and people that I, you know, I know people that are the grunts in hospitals and yeah. they're like, there are literally people here that do nothing except for they have a moniker on their desk says, you know, that my name is Stacy so-and-so. And, -so, and right. 
I'm the VP of this and that. And they have no idea what this person does except for coming every once in a while and make some color choices or some silly decisions like that. Um, so, you know, when somebody's mad about, which, you know, for the, for the regular guy, yeah. the cost of healthcare is going to be the big thing. Sometimes with, which boggles my mind, the healthcare cost is more important than outcomes. <laughs> you, you bring up a really interesting point, the whole new world. And I think this is an interesting transition that you, know, you covered a lot there, but to unpack some of these things, I, I share your view and, I get excited about it too, Bill, and I'm right with you because in reality, the only one that likes change is a wet baby, right? Mm -hmm. The adults that we deal with all the time spend a lot of time. Frankly, in some cases, they'll spend an inordinate amount of energy fighting what would take a very small amount of energy to just overcome and move forward, right? right. So change readiness, change management. When you deal with technology, you have to deal with this all the time, whether it's changes in a hospital system. Changes in state government, right? When I was there, we were consolidating dozens and dozens of state agencies from an IT perspective into one IT, right? There's really no valid reason that every department within an organization the size of the state of Illinois needs its own, you know, redundant IT department, right? There's sure. things that make sense from a, a kind of a scale perspective that you want to try to build and move together. But to your point, whether it's making change in a hospital, making change in government, Making change in the business world, trust me, there are plenty of for-profits that fight change too. So people tend to behave the way in which they're incented. So you really have to understand what that change is going to mean to them, how to get them involved with the change early on so that they don't think it's something that is being done to them. It's something that they're part of, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's part of enrolling them in that change. But to your point, it is frustratingly slow. And the older we get, the more you realize, holy cow. What could we have done if we stopped fighting the change all the time, right? And putting so much energy into it. And I think a good example is when you look at back to that tweet today and the timeline of going from an outbreak to some reasonable vaccine choices that look like they're very close here, that's pretty exciting, right? People were able to do a combination of accelerate the timeline, use technology, including artificial intelligence and machine learning to model some of these things that years ago would have taken a long time to do manually to be right. able to say, hey, look, this is reasonably safe. This, these are the outcomes. And don't get me wrong. I still think there's a little work to be done here as we move through the rest of the cycle. But everything looks pretty darn promising. And I think we're going to see some great things coming by the end of the year. Yeah, right. Now, I'm, I'm excited and again, like, I, you know, I have this, like, like, I like people. I do. I mean, the reason I do the podcast is because I like, you know, I found out after I got injured that one of my favorite things to do was have a little bit of food, some wine, and have actual, like, you know, it, don't get me wrong. It's great when you meet up with somebody and it's to hear about what their kids are doing and all that other, but let's have some deep conversation about something that's real something that like I can wrap my brain around and think about, um, you know, and I equate it to like, uh, if you got a, a, a polar bear at the zoo, they got to give them brand new toys to mess with and, and figure out all the time because otherwise you go stir crazy and, you know, your mind needs things to think about, or, you know, you end up with being one of those knuckleheads that's looking for conspiracy theories on YouTube and trying <laughs> to figure out why 5G is causing the COVID. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but back to the, like the, the original point that I was making was I'm hoping yeah. that we see lots of change due to, you know, um, the necessity being the mother of all invention, as far as that goes. And we needed 
some change as far as this COVID thing did. It really brought things to light. Yeah. I, when this thing first hit, I was like, this is going to really amplify the fact that we live in a country that doesn't have universal health care or doesn't have socialized medicine for, you know, I mean, I know that that's a bad word for, for a lot of people, but I look at it like, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Canada and I was surprised at the willingness for a dude to, I thought it was a dude thing that you don't go to the doctor, <laughs> but it's an American dude thing, right? Because yeah. if you're a Canadian and you get the sniffles, you bust off to the doctor, he cuts you some pills and you're, you're doing better already. Um, if something's a little bit wrong with you, I know plenty of people that will be like, you know, I, I've been feeling dizzy for about a month now. And I'm like, whoa, dude, go to the doc. Yeah. Well, that's going to take me to take a day off work. And then I got to spend 80 bucks to go there. Then he's going to tell me, so take these pills. That's another 80 bucks. Right. You know, I don't know. Like, and I don't know. We've never talked about, we've talked about a lot of things. We never talked about like how you feel about that situation. Yeah. For me, it's not a um, left-right issue. I can make a whole mess of entrepreneurial um, arguments for socialized medicine, and I can make a whole mess of arguments that it would free up corporate America not to have your healthcare coupled with your, you know, with your company, with the with the with your place of work. Sure. Besides the fact that someone be be more free to move from one company to another one and not worried about what's going to go out their healthcare, or the bigger one would be open their own business, start their own thing. Right. I know I know many people that were very good at a trade and they never opened that business because they were, you know, they had great healthcare at FedEx or something like that. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, there's a lot of opportunity in, in what you just covered. And when you think about the switch that's going on in healthcare right now, it used to be fee for service, right? And much of it, unfortunately, still is. It's very reactive to your point. By the time someone who has put off seeking that health care goes to the doctor, they might have an advanced condition, whether it's a, a more mature stage of cancer or a more advanced case of heart disease, et cetera. So now that we have a reactive model, they have to have an intervention, which then they are going to have to have surgery or procedure done. Then they have recovery time, time off work. So instead of putting a little bit of time and value into the front end of the equation proactively, which is what we refer to as population health, right? And population health comes back to the things, if you think about it as a, as a triangle, the way that population health works is, you know, the bottom half of the triangle are the people who are healthy, right? And we want to keep them in that bottom half that we'll call it green. The middle of that triangle is yellow. And those are the people who might have a condition. They might have diabetes, they might have hypertension, they might be obese, they might have COPD. And if you don't manage those conditions, they jump to the top of the triangle. The top of the triangle are the people that have advanced heart disease, they have cancer, they have, they're, they're in, you know, sort of end stage care, which costs us a fortune in this country, but yes, we spend right. so much of our money on the top of the triangle, if you will, instead of spending more of it kind of at the bottom. And what you hear a term that, that I think you're, you might've been referring to a little bit earlier is the social determinants of health. Technology is one of those tools that can help bend the cost curve and help you better understand what are those other things that are, that are, you know, I guess, factors, if you will, in people being able to have access to healthcare, and then the earlier they have access, they can get outcomes. I'll give you an example. Uh, as part of the CDTC, the Children's Diagnostic Treatment Center down in Fort Lauderdale, when I was with Broward Health, 
as you started to understand what they did for the community, they took care of a lot of folks who didn't have any money, right? A lot of folks were refugee type individuals. They had AIDS or unfortunately children with AIDS. And one of the things that they found out, which was a big factor in whether or not the kids took their medicine or were getting the regular care was, did they give them a bus pass? Because, you know, it's hard for somebody with no phone or, or nothing to be, no resources, right? To be able to make their appointments or be able to bring their child in. So once you really start to dig into and understand the large role that the social determinants of health play in these outcomes, it's a big deal. So you know, you're taking an old system that was all fee for service, very reactionary, right? Wasn't proactive, was all the hospitals, the, a lot of the physicians, the others were getting paid based on procedures that, that were happening. Sometimes the procedures didn't go well, they'd have to do another one, even if someone had made a mistake somewhere and they were getting paid each time. So it's really, healthcare is one of the most uniquely, um, <laughs> unique systems that you're gonna find out there that's finally starting to come around to some of the, the factors that I think the open market and free market have had in many ways, but this is where we get into the yin and the yang of how do we give the right levels of access to people, right, that deserve healthcare, and I believe everybody deserves healthcare, right, I would never say that they don't, but the right idea is how do we create the safety net pieces that are there that can deliver evidence-based standards of care while still having cutting-edge technology and innovation occurring at the top of the spectrum, right, at the Mayo Clinics and, and Cleveland Clinic, et cetera, places like that. So it's that yin and the yang where I think that we'll get a real balance going forward, but this flip that I was describing before around population health and moving to value-based outcomes, paying our caregivers to keep people well, not how many stents they put in, not how many you know, procedures they had to do after the fact. How did I keep somebody healthy and how do we reimburse them for that? That's been the biggest challenge that's gone on as we go through the shift. And this shift hasn't been happening quickly, right? This has gone on for quite some time. I think that what's going to happen coming out of COVID is that you have the adoption of telehealth and other services that are now, they're, they're equalizing the playing field, right? Because I'm able to get back in touch with someone via my phone or be able to make an appointment to your point without leaving work, without getting stuck in traffic, without burning gas, without missing my kid's soccer game, doing all of those things. So sorry for the long answer there, but oh, I'm pretty well. passionate and I'm, I'm pretty excited that a lot of the things that you just talked about, they're here to stay in many, in most cases. And I think, it's going to take the better part of next year before we reach, if the vaccines are successful, and I believe they will be, it's going to take a while into maybe at least late summer before we get back to normal. But let's hope that the new normal doesn't require someone to think that I can only add value if my, you know, my butt's in a seat somewhere up at near O'Hare, right? I should be able to yeah, do it. Yeah, I would, I would hope that, right, that we could still yeah. wrap our brain around the fact that if it was this way and there's things that we don't need. I think sometimes... Yeah, I mean, you said a lot, and there's a lot that, like, the challenges that you were talking about, some of it has to do with, for a lot of it, for me, always reverts back to greed, right? So, like, we've got this situation where fast food companies want to make things that are hardly food, and then people consume that. I grew up with two parents that worked at grocery stores, so I thought it was normal that people had a pretty healthy diet. Like, we didn't get fast food that often. We pretty much, you know, it was peanut butter and jellies and eggs and bacon and that kind of stuff in the morning. It was, you know, it was food from the grocery store that we ate most of the time. And that transferred on to my life here with my boys. We eat healthy, real healthy. When I talk to other people about their diets, I'm almost flabbergasted that they ate a bag of Cheetos for dinner. Like it is like, what did you like? There's no nutritional value in that at all. It's like corn and a bunch of crap. So 
you know, the, the fact that we are, you know, by the data, we're a really unhealthy country as far as it goes. Our obesity rate is through the roof. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And you're bringing up two things there that I really like to touch on because technology now more than ever has the opportunity to help nudge us in the right direction. So remember how we talked about social determinants of health? Can you imagine living in a neighborhood where it's a food desert, right? And the only thing that you have is the local shop that's selling me cigarettes, liquor, and Twinkies. And there isn't really fresh food or produce or different things anywhere around me. I grew up thinking that, you know, eat, eating a hostess pie or whatever we had as kids, right, is, is normal every day for breakfast. Um, food is medicine, right? It's the first thing that you put into your body. And if you put enough of the wrong things in over time, you're going to pay for that, right? The real challenge is if people don't know any difference, they repeat what they know. They repeat what they see. So you have the opportunity with the democratization of information. And this gets back into another thing I want to touch on, which is the importance of people having access to that information so that they can get that data and understand what it is. They can change their lifestyle and do things, right? I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of the Apple Watch. This is the latest watch six is just as much of a healthcare device as it is anything else at this point, right? It sure. can tell my O2 level. It can give me a, a very good ECG. It tracks my heart rate. It does a lot of other things. And by the way, it can tell me to get up and move. It can, it keeps track of how many steps or calories I burn in a day, sure. how many times I stand sure. in my chair. I rely on this, you know, and, and it's not to say that I don't know any better, but I don't practice. I'm like everybody else. I don't practice what I know. I get into what I'm doing here and I forget about what I'm doing. And I'm as guilty of, as anybody of, you know, going up to get in the kitchen in the other room and, you know, reaching for an Oreo versus, uh, you know, a, an apple. So. Right. Well, the, the technology you're talking about, like, I, I love the, the tech stuff. I do. I mean, and if used correctly and you imply your, or, you know, apply your own disciplines to it, um, social media for me, you know, like it, it, it's a time suck, right? So like I'll get on there and like, I'm like, oh my God, why am I looking at this crap? I started to go towards um, checking, setting a timer for how much time I could be on apps and stuff like that. Yeah. And then not being on them. And it has helped my productivity for sure to be able not to be wasting time. Because it, it's amazing how fast 30 minutes can go by when you're just scrolling or reading dumb stuff or whatever like that. And it, it, when you get done with that 30 minutes, if you really take an evaluation of, was that any good for me at all? Because, you know, we're talking about food and you kind of like you are what you eat. You are what you consume too mentally. Correct. So, you know, when I'm consuming this crap, the, the watch, that's terrific. I mean, I thought I saw there's a, there's a device out now that does like a medical grade EKG. Yeah, people. this does that. This does an EKG, medical grade. It does your O2. It can tell right. your blood oxygen level. Quite frankly, I'm, I'm hearing, I haven't, uh, I can't cite them and I hate to bring it up, but I do believe that it's, it's out there. The data to show that with enough folks wearing these in the community with changes to your O2 level, your heart rate and other conditions that it can sense when there's a COVID outbreak, right? Just based on changes wow. in that. Wow. So this is where we start to, we're going to go back into data, right? Everything we do, everything we touch, it has data. At the edge, this is an IoT device, right? Internet of Things. It's it's not only a watch, it's a monitor, it's a sensor. 
the sensor from that data flows back into the cloud. In the cloud, it could we can do a lot of things with that data, right? We can compare it to other sets of data. We can look at Jack King, 50-year-old white male, maybe eats a little too much from time to time, right? Uh, it, it has his own sets of challenges, right? But the more it knows about me and my behaviors, and the more it knows about the outcomes of other similar people with those behaviors, the more that it can try to help me not make those same mistakes. And I mean, George Soros and Bill Gates can track you too. <laughs> well, I'm not quite there yet. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, the good thing about understanding technology is, uh, you know, once you know how it works, you can know how it can look like you're doing something as well. And maybe right, you're not. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, I mean, people putting their pedometers on their dog to get their yeah, stuff. But, win the contest. Uh, right, right. Uh, so, no, but, you know, there's marvels of technology that are, I mean, the, the, the fact that it can do an EKG on you and if everyone had one of those on, oh boy, could we get ahead of heart, uh, congestive heart failure and, you know, heart disease and stuff like that. You could, you could be so far ahead of the game on that situation that you can, you can reduce the cost of healthcare if we could. The problem is, is people won't comply. When I made the joke about Soros and Gates, there are people out there that fully believe that the Illuminati is out to get them. And it's like, you know, I, the thing I don't get with some of that stuff is if you're a ultra wealthy billionaire, it seems like the system that's in place is working marvelously for you. Why would you possibly want to throw a wrench into that situation? I mean, when we all don't go to work because of COVID and things go to hell as far as the economy goes, Billionaires lose money because we are, you can make an argument that we are essentially carrying their burden as far as we're, we're what they make money on. Yeah, it's, so. it, it, you're right, Bill. I think it's fascinating. You know, you have to, I have to remind myself of this, right? Even paranoid people are right once in a while, right? Because, yeah. it, you know, there's no absolute truths here when it comes to some of these things. I don't understand the fascination that people have with subscribing to the kind of outlandish opinion, you know, grassy knoll things that are out there uh, without having more data. That doesn't mean that some underhanded things don't occasionally go on, but the, to think that these are all scripted and well-planned out and to your point, um, aren't freak accidents or things over time. Uh, you know, people spend a lot of time trying to ascribe meaning to that or to try to say, oh, there's evidence and try to make it fit their hypothesis. So, you know, when I hear those types of things, I try to listen and I try to ask questions and get folks who are giving me the answers to realize yeah, that's kind of interesting. But to your point, what would be in it for them, right? Why would they want to do that? Right. right. Um, and, and on what evidence are we drawing that conclusion? You know, so it, to your point, though, it gets back to technology. To me, technology is a steak knife, right? It can be used for good or it could be used for harm. It's a scalpel. It could be used for all kinds of, of good or devious things. The reality is, if you look at social media platforms, there's a lot of good that comes from connecting with other people if you're locked in or shut in. There's a lot of good that comes with filling, just like eating, filling your body with the right foods, filling yourself with the right thoughts, but being conscientious to your point of not consuming too much of the wrong things or realizing that, hey, when I see this over here, I probably need to question more of that. That's sort of the, you know, you have kids, I have kids. That's sort of one of my goals as a parent is not to teach them what to think, but to teach them how to think, right? And yes, if you yes, teach yes, them yes. how to think and how to ask the next question, and even when it comes to data, because lots of people will present you cherry pick data that's completely skewed, et cetera. If you teach them to ask some basic questions, you can get them to be critical thinkers. 
and to do it in a polite way so that, you, you know, you don't have to go to either end of the bell curve and start throwing things at the other party to disagree with them and still be able to go have a beer, right? Right. So with the data thing, uh, you know, well, first you said something about like with the, with the kids, like, so my sons will watch things like, uh, there's a, a series on uh, YouTube that's called Middle Ground. And they will literally take like flat earthers yeah. and astrophysicists and put them in the same room and try and get them to like have a dialogue. And it's difficult because this is the world we're in now where we have people who are obviously, and it's hard for me to be like, not treat you like you're a, comp what is, what went wrong in the wiring when you were growing up that this could be something you could possibly believe you have to do so much mental gymnastics to get to this point. And there's a physicist right in front of you explaining no, and you're telling them no, and you're bringing up Bible scriptures and, I, so I, I look at my sons and I said, listen, this is, this is going to be the thing. It, I want you to make your own decisions. I want you to critically think about things, but I want you to take one, a couple of rules into this thing. And a couple of them are that if there's a conspiracy theory that involves more than five people, it's probably not true just because you can't, you can't keep all of NASA together on the earth is flat really, but we're, we're, you know, global, you know, we're, we're saying it's a globe. And you can't keep them together on, we never went to the moon, but, you know, we faked the moon landing kind of a thing. Like you, it's too many people. The uh, other ones that people like to point to is that, you know, um, there's always a nugget of truth. And that's another thing that I tell my boys. There's always this nugget of truth in a conspiracy theory, right? So there's always this thing that is undeniably true and it's very logical that it goes on. Like... Um, there's probably more money in treating cancer than curing cancer. Probably true, but does that mean that everybody that works in the cancer field is a, is in some conspiracy theory not to cure cancer? It doesn't. It doesn't mean that at all. There's no, just because you can collate something doesn't make it the cause of something or you know however that you know. You yeah, no, you're right. Causation and correlation. It's amazing how confusing that is for some folks, right? right? I always try to assume noble intent, to your point, assume that they may not even know any better or no one's even asked the question or gotten them to kind of, you know, kind of check their position on it and get them to think a little bit about it. And let's face it, we're, we're living in a society where the media sensationalizes and amplifies the, the negative between any parties that disagree over anything. So, you know, people immediately go to those hardened positions and then they don't negotiate and then they don't trust one another and you can't even meet in the middle, to, to your point. That's the other thing. You know, you've, I had this discussion today with one of the members of the household on a, on a car ride uh, because it, something came up politically that we were talking about and the absolute position came out. And I said, you know what? the challenge today is that everybody immediately goes to their corner instead of meeting in the middle. And I honestly believe that we all have so much in common. We probably have 80% of the things we all want for one another in common, but everybody wants to talk about the 10% on the other side of the curve, right? And that's where they camp. So they're missing out on a real opportunity to meet in the middle, build some bridges, and then use the art of persuasion, data, science, evidence, facts, and other things to move each other and to learn from one another. Right. So with the data thing, it's going to drive you nuts when somebody, because data is like a tricky thing, right? You can, there, there's, uh, if we're just talking baseball, there's useless stats. There's right. things that are, the, the, the amount of times a pitcher has a winning record, that's pretty much a useless stat. And it, it depends heavily on 
run production by the rest of the team. You could have a great pitcher who has a losing record, but he's pitched, you know, outstanding. Put him with another team and he does better. The stat that's thrown out there with the COVID thing that I find fairly useless is the cases. The cases thing is it's great that we're finding the cases. It's, it is, it's alarming when you're talking to the tens of thousands and stuff like that. Those, that's a troublesome thing, but the deaths and hospitalizations are far more important. And the one that they, I never hardly hear about is, so I've, I've looked into it. It seems like five times the amount of deaths are people that are permanently disabled by COVID. So lung scarring, that's permanently, they, they can't, or I think there's six successful ones where they're double lung transplants now with yeah. COVID patients. People are not talking about this, and that's a long-term, I'm a guy that's in a wheelchair. Uh, you know what? If I would have died that day, that would suck, but it would suck that day. Right. This sucks for the last 17 years. So if you're a guy busting around with an oxygen tank forever now because you thought it was a hoax, well, you know, you, you probably got more to pay over time than some of their dies because it's over. You know what I mean? Sort of yeah. Thing. Yeah. And I know exactly what you mean. Uh, when it comes to data, you, you raised a lot of interesting questions, right? The, the data quality, the data integrity, um, how we secure our data, what we do with our data, how we look at our data, right? The visualization of data. If I, you, Early on in the pandemic, especially when you would look at some of the charts, you'd start to understand I'm not sure that what we're tracking here, to your point, here's the number of tests that we administered, right? And here was the, the positive outcomes that you're tracking. You're thinking, well, of course, this is, it's kind of fascinating. The more people we test, the more you know, positives we're likely to find, depending upon where we test, which is why it was really important to understand at the beginning of the outbreak, where are these cases at? Which zip code is Bill in or is Jack in? And how many people, how many tests did we do? How many are positive there? And then based on your interviews with the positive people, how much more, you know, con how much contact have they had with others in the community? And then you should be able to extrapolate, that's a hot spot. You need to go do more testing in that particular area. And I think, you know, one of the good things that came from the pandemic pandemic was a be much better understanding of epidemiology and how to set up quickly and get testing sites out there. Early on, there weren't even enough testing kits. I can remember getting ready to set up some of the first field testing sites, and it was false starts, right? We had infrastructure teams out there to get all the connectivity, the things in place, you know, all the workflow folks out there. Don't forget, it's not as simple as swab it and throw it in the jar. There's a lot more that goes on to who did I swab? How are those test results coming back? Did they have insurance? Did they not? How do we make sure, you know, that we're giving the right results to people? Have they signed off on things? How do we get it to the lab on time? There's a lot of logistics right that go into that but what was amazing to me is it all started by getting you know caught off guard which we shouldn't have been but somehow managed to be right we watched us go around the world and and hit our own shores and still didn't understand the demand for for test units etc i think we're going to look back on this point in time future generations should look back on this point in time and be asking the question how could they have had so much data and so little knowledge and action right and there's a lot of answers to that there's a lot of answers to that right and i think it starts with leadership uh, in a lot of places right but especially the top that could have been handled differently right and i think the lessons that can be learned from that from this point going forward should be applied in that we're going to see better 
control of these things in the future. And I think a lot more preparation uh, versus trying to worry about, you know, jetliners or things landing with rubber gloves because no one can find any. Right. 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 Well, and that was, you know, you touch on so much because like so much of what goes on and the information that's put out there is somehow manipulated as a political football because this person or that person's in charge or or however it's going. The, the, the things that were done that were, I mean, the shutting down, the problem is also to like people that are like, I'm not a professional. I'm not very good at what I say being exactly what I mean. But when I, when I turn on the, the news and I see someone who's like, uh, I pick somebody, Andrew Mitchell, who's been on TV for 30 years now, and she's still using the wrong words for things it drives me up the wall because it's like listen you 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 know you you can't say you can't come out and say that um the president shut and i'm not you know not say his name because i i don't want it to be political but the president shut down all travel from china he did not he shut down chinese nationals coming from that country to this country if you were a u.s citizen living in china they all left there right then when that happened and did come here. We had a flood of people from China that came. Now, I don't, you know, I know that there's a bunch of magical thinking out there that if you're born on this side of an imaginary line in the dirt, that you're somehow special. But I'm telling you, if you were in China and you got, you got COVID, you got on a plane and came back here, you gave it to everybody else. It's just, disease doesn't care, Bill. The, no, the disease right. doesn't care. I agree. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, when you, when you start saying things and then it becomes, that's what he did. Well, he didn't do that. And then you got people arguing about, you know, and it's part of the reasons that I like podcasts because so many people get their information from the five minute segment that they have uh, three experts or so-called experts on. And they talk about things in a more general way. And then people extrapolate. And then you have to delve into the opinion news where someone's always seeming to ask the viewer a question and then you're supposed to like, they know your leanings. So they're asking you a question. And so what do you think they would do with this sort of thing? Listen, you cannot leave it up to like cowboy logic for some of these idiots because they're just going to run with this shit. Like it, it, it is interesting. Cause I think you get, you know, associated opinions, people who, you know, mm-hmm. folks are following them. You ask someone a leading question or throw them a softball and they crank it out of the park and everybody goes, yep. See, there's another home run. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think it goes back to critical thinking like we were talking about. And when you really, when someone expresses an opinion, if they don't have evidence behind that, whether it's, you know, the person driving my Uber or quite frankly, even a doctor recommending a procedure, right? We have enough data in the world that we should be asking for evidence where, where it exists around things. And we should be using the logic and the brains we've been given to understand here are sets of data. This is what it looks like. And even if I can't prove all of it out, I, I have enough evidence to suggest this is not a good idea, right? Or this will lead to the spread of the disease, or this is not going to be positive outcome. Um, we've been doing that for a long time, right? Fight or flight, etc. I think it's a digital version of that today. And I think there's a lot of confusion because the amplification of kind of false profits and nonsense has gone on at a faster pace than it ever has before because of social media. 
right? So asking the, you know, the Kardashians what they think about COVID-19, I really could care less, right? But you and I both know, it's like years ago, you can remember when you talk about vaccines and, and Jenny McCarthy, right? And other actresses yeah. that had opinions on this that weren't necessarily backed up with much data, if any, and oh. were opinions. And look at what we had. We had returns of some, <laughs> some things that started to have been stamped out for a long time, right? Because all of a sudden, I don't know if it was whooping cough or different things in that particular instance, but, you know, people, follow these kind of false prophets from time to time and you have to look at it and think you know why are you doing that well i think the reason that more people are doing it is again i assume noble intent but when somebody gets a microphone shoved in front of them or is being interviewed by a person of prominence to your point they figure oh i better listen to what this person has to say right and a lot of times what they have to say is a bunch of hogwash yeah well right so <laughs> there, there, there almost needs to be like a reform of how we critical thinking needs to be something that's taught. I think I, it seems strange that that that's something that has to happen, but this thing where like a Jenny McCarthy can come out and say, my son got vaccinated and she collates his autism with the vaccination. And then that spurs on to every single, this thing where somebody won't take, First, everyone's so offended by everything, right? So, like, if you look at some woman and you say, hey, Sally, you know, I know your son has autism and I don't want to offend you, but just because you had this and this happen in the, in the relatively same time, personal anecdotes are not scientific data. That's not correct. For, for a guy that like you that was in the data stuff, you, there has to be I, – I, my head explodes every time I see anything – hardly anymore. And I don't have the, the background that you have. When I saw that uh, panel of uh, doctors from California who came out with the YouTube videos claiming it was a hoax and they're, you know, they, it was a government, uh, it was all just bullshit and everything else. And these guys turned out to be guys where they were just general practitioner, doc in the box owners that were really upset that a lot of their other practices were shut down because of this situation. Yeah. Like, you know, it stemmed back to greed and it, it made this magical thinking where people that wanted it to be a certain way could listen to these people with lab coats on. And then it was, it was, I don't know, the whole thing, you've got a leading epidemiologist who's on TV every day explaining one thing and they're saying something totally different because they're an ear, nose and throat guy. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think that uh, the other thing that was interesting when you look at the medical community were the varying opinions from different camps. And again, even though, you know, many of these folks, if not all of them, are extremely highly educated, brilliant people in their own right. But uh, you know, me having a broad understanding of many things doesn't necessarily make me an expert in any one of them, right? And I think that part of being a human is uh, maybe at times overextending our understanding of our own capabilities. I know I've done it. I'm sure a lot of people have. Um, there's a false sense of confidence, I think, that comes with people who have been successful, right? And some people we know have been born successful, right? And, and they think that they have some sort of magical thing. And in reality is, uh, do they really? Or were they just, you know, won the genetic lottery? I don't know. But in the end, the more self-aware someone is to say, well, is that really, is this my opinion or do I have evidence to back that up? 
that's the question. And to your point, when someone tells us something, we need to be asking the question of where did that come from? How many times is that repeatable? Has it been peer reviewed, right? Those are the types of terminology that you'd want to hear in the medical community in order to validate someone's research or findings, right? Was this scientifically sound? Was the group large enough that you did the test against? Were other people able to repeat the test with similar outcomes? Are there any biases that need to be disclosed to your point, Bill, that I have a reason for why I might be saying this, right? Or I have a relationship to a product, a service, or a financial interest in this. I think that um, the healthcare profession has come a very long way, and I'm proud of where they're going. We need to go there even faster across the rest of the profession. But, you know, to start off meetings and different things to say, does anybody have a conflict of interest, right, to, that they need to disclose in this meeting? So building these things into the regular formats where you're having the sharing and dissemination of information even within the medical community. And maybe we need to take something like that out to the journalistic community, right? Or, or to where we do that to say, you know, it's really unethical if you're out here talking about these things and you're not disclosing your own position on this. Cause that's really, you know, to me, it's a little bit of lying through omission because people that are trying to digest that information and objectively sort through it, that's an important nugget of information that I think they're entitled to. Right. And then, I mean, I've also got the, uh, rule now that if anyone says anything and I really like what they say, I need to look back and see if there's any demon semen speeches that they give. <laughs> if there's any of those that I'm out. Like, like, so this is, but this is the problem. Like, it's not even like some of the stuff that went on with this, it was so obvious that it was just complete bonkers nut shit that was just going on. And I mean, I don't know. We're definitely this was this this COVID thing came in a perfect storm. We had the you know the dictator wannabe guy that just. I mean, I I, I sometimes I actually feel bad for Donald Trump because I think this guy all he really wants is the adulation and love of as many people as he can get. And you know what? He's never going to have it. When you see someone like Obama go on a uh, talk show or something like that and everybody loves the guy and it's just great to hear him speak and they're laughing and joking between each other Donald Trump's never going to have that unless he goes on Sean Hannity and that's just a whole nother you know world of bullshit but uh so we have this we have a media that is click-based right where it's all about who's looking at what and the ratings and everything else we've got all these wild wild west platforms that anybody can say anything that they want to say, and it's not challenged. Right. And the algorithms that go, like we were talking about the social dilemma last night, right. the algorithms that go with that, like, and I've, I've done the experiment. So I go, I'll go on social media and I will only like things that are, you know, uh, puppies, something like that. Someone's with someone's dog constantly. I will get more puppies on there. And I mean, then we also have this other thing where, like my Echo Dot is listening to me have this conversation right now. Right. My phone is probably listening to me talk also. Um, my son is playing Fortnite or whatever he's playing right now. And everything that is going on in the conversation, him playing the game, all shows up in my newsfeed as if something <laughs> I wanted. I mean, I'll tell you one that I don't, some people get like real leery about everything. I don't necessarily mind the marketing one. I can follow the money and say, this makes sense to dollars and cents 
that if I'm looking at kayaks online, that I'm going to see ads for kayaks. Right. That, that to me is harmless. There's no chance I'm going to blow my life savings on kayaks, so we're going to be okay. But there should be a button, and I, mean, I should probably patent this before I say it, there should be a button on all those ads that says I already bought the damn thing. Because <laughs> if I look at gym equipment and I buy gym equipment, for the next month I got to look at gym equipment and I already bought oh, it. Bill, Bill, that button exists on your browser. Just clear your cash and your history and oh, go right, do that, right, right? right? I mean, you're just I, I could let the I could let the people that are spying on me know I already <laughs> bought a set of kayaks, man. It's over. I'm not going to buy another kayak in my life. Yours, yours, you, it was such a great marketing thing to begin with. Now it's the worst marketing thing. You've got the guy who already bought the kayak. So, yeah. you know. Uh, uh, it's been, think, think about what you just, you said something really important because I think this, I was thinking about uh, a little bit about our conversation about this, right? But we're living in an, an age of disinformation, right? And we're asking people to blindly trust things like AI and the algorithms behind it. Yeah. Uh, how likely do you think that is? People are looking right now going, yeah, I'm not sure I trust this. And you know what? To some degree, remember how I made my comment about paranoia? Maybe you should be asking questions. And having worked in technology for a very long time and having seen a lot of the great things that it can do and having seen it used by employers, by other agencies and things to uh, do things that I might consider questionable um, is a challenge, right? When you look at what are the ethics behind how this should be used, the technological capabilities around innovation have always outpaced regulation, right? And don't forget, this is a combination of the insurgents who are the new innovators, right? In these platforms and technologies. Right. And you've got the incumbents, right? Who have been around for a long time and don't want to let go of things to do things. The incumbents always use regulation to stymie the innovators. That's the name of the game, right? That's what lobbyists are for. That's what, that's how the game is played, right? The government is in the business, like it or not, of picking winners. That's what they do, right? right. And whether or not that, whether or not that is a, a system that needs improvement, I think we can all agree that there's a lot of improvement that could go into that. Sure. But we'd be blind not to acknowledge that all of those things exist and we're at a unique point in time where the amplifications of all these crazy theories are happening on these platforms. We live in the greatest I'm going to still go out and say absolutely the greatest country in the world when it comes to opportunity and freedom and doing things. And during a pandemic, that's not working out so well, right? But it doesn't mean you throw away the freedoms. So there's a lot of things like you and I were talking about where we have a really unique situation. And I think it's compounded and amplified because at this point in time, all of the misuse of technology that's out there, as much as it's helping, it's creating chaos, right? On some level. Yeah, I agree 100% that we, so there's this like you got to walk this fine line of not being this conspiratorial right every every government sees a sees a moment where they can take some of your liberties or some of your rights away because of an issue right so like it's the back to the star wars the you know supreme chancellor this is the threat you need to give me these powers so i can be the emperor and then i'll hand them back and then they never hand them back so we have 9-11 happen, we let the Patriot Act happen, and then we never, we never relinquish those rights again. The regulation thing, though, when I'm getting on a plane, I'm surely happy that they're regulated. Yeah, like, agreed. I'm, I am too. I don't need cowboys to do this thing. And then when I'm eating at a restaurant, I'm glad that somebody went back there and made sure there wasn't rat turds <laughs> everywhere, and I'm not, you know, getting a little sprinkles on my, on my sandwich. So, you know... 
I dealt with right from a contractor standpoint, I dealt with regulation and it, my first, the, the, the knee jerk reaction was, was, Oh, this sucks. This is complete bullshit. I've been building these things for a while now. And now I got these other rules I got to abide by. But if you really take a step back from it and being a contractor is it's, 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 it's a, it's a hard job but it's also an easy job. It, when, it, when I'm, it's like, uh, it's like being the tallest midget sometimes. <laughs> I used to go get people that I had a salesman for and take them past some of the taverns and the morons that were in the taverns with the signs on the trucks for the, I go, that's my competition right there. That you're, you're going to get a quote from him and him and him. And I go, you notice it's five 30. They're already three sheets to the wind and I'm still working. So when you're trying to get a hold of me in the evening, I'll be able to get a hold of me. He's going to, you know, hang his phone up, do whatever. Right. The regulation came along and we were building a house in Frankfurt and well, it was in uh, uh, um, Will County. So it was like uh, unincorporated Will County. Yeah. And at one point, Will County fired every single person that land use, got rid of everybody wow. and brought in new. And the reason they did that was, and I had it happen at my job. One of the guys pulled up in his truck and I walked up there and I go, what's happening? And he goes, uh, here's your green slip. And I'm like, you got to, didn't you go look at the job? And he goes, Oh no, I know. I'm sure you, you, you know, you framed it right and everything else. And I'm like, Oh no, just come look. And he's like, no, 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 I gotta, you know, and he handed it to me. I'm like, that's screwed up. I know I did the job correctly, but you should still do your job. I think your job is an essential one, but so enough of that went on where things failed and they fired everybody. I framed a home in Frankfurt, right outside Frankfurt. They came in. We didn't. We weren't even like on the site when the inspector came in. We took the day and went to another job. I came back and my list was there. And usually there's one or two things because they have to do something to do their job. There was 48 things on the list. Wow. And I was almost like, oh my God, a little wave hit me that I was like, maybe I need to change careers. <laughs> I must be doing this wrong. Then I was like, all right, take a deep breath and read. I read the thing and we literally, my crew of five guys within 30 minutes had three quarters of the things. They were literally like dab of fire caulk at Northeast, like here and there. And that, like, it was all kinds of ticky tack, tiny, 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 fine. We did those things. And then there was a couple things that we were missing. They wanted hurricane strapping for this or something like that. Brand new code things that they wanted that I missed. Perfectly fine. Did those things. I thought, boy, this is not going to be good if every job is going to be with 48 things all the time. Yeah. But then I thought, now they're going to weed out these yahoos. They're going to weed. Do you know how many horror stories there are, contractor-wise, that you hired a guy and he cut the corners and then literally you could put, put your life at risk if the guy did the wrong thing because you're living sure. under this thing or on top of this thing. So for me, regulation became good. It became something that separated the good from the bad. Now, do I think that there is a orchestrated situation to pick winners and losers? Yes, but it's bigger than that. It has to do with lobbyists and stuff where corporations come in and say, we want you to pass it like this so that our current system can go through just fine. But their, my competition's current system won't. They're going to have to retool their entire process to make this thing work like this, and then I'm the winner. So I get that, and that's wrong. But when I hear people say blanket things like deregulation, 
I'm like, people are going to die. Well, don't, don't mistake my quote for saying deregulation. That's not okay. what I'm saying okay. all right. at all. What I am saying is, you know, I like the term smart bureaucracy, right? Because I think there's elements of both of these things that are good for the consumer and good for all of us, right? We want to make sure that things are generally safe and that we're doing the right things, right, in the right order and that we're learning, right? And we're always constantly applying what we've learned as we go forward so that we can make things better. I think there's taking things too far where it can be ridiculously bureaucratic and uh, very preservationist for certain self-interests, right? To your point on an extreme, but let's keep those at the fringe, right? Just because there might be a few outliers doesn't mean we shouldn't have the process. But the reason that I bring it up is when you think about the capabilities of artificial intelligence and machine learning and the lack of, you know, government, capabilities and quite frankly if you if you ever want to see this in action just go back and replay some of the interviews where you hear members of congress interviewing some of the big tech leaders yeah no those questions are that they're asking them are should just scare all of us because if we're relying on the millionaire lawyers that people keep sending you know to represent us that yes. don't understand even the most basic fundamentals of technology as demonstrated through their questions we're in big trouble, right? So if we're expecting them to have insights or really be able to critically think about how to apply this in a proper way, there's a long way to go, right? So in between people stepping up to say, hey, I think that there should be some limits on what we can do here. I am not a fan of stymieing free speech. At the same time, I'm not a fan of someone, you know, uh, live streaming something that's completely inappropriate or causing harm to another human being, I'm not in that camp. If someone has a political opinion that others don't agree with, I am not in favor of saying they cannot say anything on a platform or we're automatically going to slap labels all over everything using an imperfect AI algorithm, <laughs> etc. Right. So this is where, you know, this is really about the maturation of how do I make sure these, these never thing, never events, as I would like to call them happen, right? There shouldn't be these things live screamed. There shouldn't be someone, you know, talking about harming or injury or death or anything that's just ridiculously, you know, something that shouldn't be there. But for the sake of discourse, I also don't believe, and I think for this reason, you can, you can put me on the record, within five years, you will start to see uh, a breakup of many of the large tech companies. They're going to break them apart just like they did. My prediction is they'll end up breaking many of them apart, similar to what they did to the Bell companies years ago, yeah. uh, because they're too powerful, they're too big, the barriers to entry are too large for others. And even though this isn't popular, and I know they don't like to hear it, they've actually uh, accelerated their own demise with some of the things they did in this last election cycle and leading up to it. And I think both parties were frustrated with some of the things that went on. So if anything, they brought the spotlight onto themselves. You're going to see actions happen, I think, before January to bring additional charges against one of the major players there in Google, unfortunately. And then I think that's just going to open the door because I think that everybody agrees that right now they have way too much power and this is consolidated in too few of hands. Yeah, I, I agree. There's some things that I find that are kind of a pickle, though. Like when you say something like uh, Twitter, like, and, I mean, I think you're talking about that as far as the tech companies also, right? Like the Twitters and the platforms, right? Think of it as, they call it, uh, you know, uh, Facebook, Apple, Google, Amazon, you know, the, those larger organizations. Right, right. But when you're a company that you're, business model is connecting the most amount of people together on one platform. How do you go about breaking that up? Because now you're, are you saying that you're literally going to take my 
3,000 connections on Facebook and make me go to three different places to get 1,000 connections. Yeah. It's a little bit odd of, right. a, of a scenario. And you have to convince people to use another product now, right? You have to say, hey, you can't use this. You got to use And I mean, I've got my full list of like uh, parlor jokes that are out there with, uh, with that platform. I mean, that this, this COVID thing has been, it's been terrible as far as like, you know, my dating life and, and my social life. And like, I like to go out and get a drink and some laughs with some people and stuff like that. And that's all been bad. But it's also been like this, this illuminating thing on all of these things that it, it, it shined a light on so much that's wrong with the way we go about what we're doing. It, it's been pretty amazing to see that like, you know, we back to the, you know, like we, if you don't get your brakes fixed when they, when they first start, you're going to have to do rotors, the whole thing. Same with healthcare. If we were just going to the dock all the time, we would, we'd be able to find these things. And then we've got these other problems like the AI thing. And I want to get into that because I've got some like fantasies with AI that are like, boy, someday. And I mean, maybe it's a thousand years from now we should, and I can't even get people to trust a vaccine let alone trust AI. But I think that, so and people need to, but they, they, the problem is, is like, I spend all of my time, or the, I have some guilty pleasures as far as I'll scroll through Facebook and stuff like that. But otherwise, I always have something inputting in me, like constantly. Like if I, if I go to the bathroom, I've got a, a podcast on or something like that. If I'm in my car, I've got an audio book on. If I, if I, anything that I'm doing, I've got something on and it's generally got some historical value. It's got some data value. Um, and then, you know, some sci-fi stuff too. But the awesome thing about like machine learning and AI is they can run scenarios way faster than we can run scenarios. So we're, and I mean, when I say way faster, when you get into quantum computing and stuff like that, like tens of thousands of times as a multiplier faster. So they're going to come up with solutions. If you take a, we grew up, you know, pretty much same areas, same age. It seemed like nothing changed forever, right? I had to set up pliers to change the TV from five, seven and two forever. And then all of a sudden I can control everything in my house with my damn phone. Right? So now it's, it's quantum leaping so fast and AI is going to contribute to the, it's going to start blowing us away, right? It's going to start being something that's mind boggling. But I think that my, my big fantasy and you'll just laugh is that we should have an AI that does the whole like war games thing when we were kids where it like realizes this scenario never ends where you win a nuclear war. It never ends. So we should have like an AI government that would actually decide without politics what's the best solution for the problem not you know like we get so sidetracked and someone says socialized medicine and someone right away goes how are you gonna pay for that but we can spend 744 billion dollars on defense and no one ever says shit about that about tanks that are just rusting in a field somewhere no problem but how are we gonna pay for health care for like it doesn't make any sense Oh, I lost you. I got no sound. Is that any better? Ah, there you go. There you go. There you All go. right. Yeah. So I think you brought up something really interesting there. Um, 
the entire schema of what is AI, there's a lot within it, right? Mm-hmm. And I, the, some of the, the things that you're talking about with you have these, you know, fantasies or thoughts about what the world could be or how this will impact as we move forward. I, you need to think about this a little bit. So it's not going to be machines or humans. It's going to be machines and humans, and they'll be working side by side. So the, the, the machines are getting better and better at doing the repeatable tasks, right? Because we can teach them those tasks. We can show them if this happens, then do this. Artificial intelligence is even better because it can then tell if something happened that wasn't supposed to happen and I did why, then I now know what to do to make this better the next time. So it learns, right? And it it will know that after enough patterns, it can do that. So we're still a long way off from the machine necessarily doing things completely on its own. But to your point of what you just said, the, the idea of us turning over some of these decisions to a machine that's much smarter at us. The machine is much smarter at doing specific tasks and figuring out very complex scenarios, right? In all the different outcomes that can happen many, many times faster than any of our brains can ever do. What it can't yet do is understand all of the context and possibilities or see it from a human's necessarily human's emotional standpoint, an ethical standpoint, a reasoning and logic. But If we were at this point to say, hey, I just want to turn it over to a machine, what you're essentially saying is you want to turn it over to the last programmer that put an algorithm in there, which means you're going to get his or her opinion deciding what your future is. Because there is not one algorithm that's in place today that isn't at least partially biased for the person who designed it or put it in. It's inherent, right? Right, but are we... So then the difference would be to move to something that was, and this is where it gets dangerous, right? Where it's sentient, where it's like, where it can learn and then actually have feelings or devise its own opinion about something and it becomes Skynet, you know what I mean? Where it's going yeah. to take over and decides that we're not, we're not necessary. So let me, let me tell you something that I think is absolutely fascinating. The whole idea of a patient going up to a kiosk or talking to someone, even on a Zoom perspective where you and I can see each other fairly well and we can size each other up and look each other in the eye. Um, If you have people interview, let's talk about someone who's checking in for the first time at a doctor's office. You know how you have your endless clipboards and your forms and questions and answers, your medical history, right? The history stuff that you put in and everybody gets tired of filling in the same field, et cetera. Well, we've gotten slightly better at that, but healthcare is still way behind where it needs to be. But what some of the studies have found, and this is fascinating, is that if I were interviewing Bill as a first-time patient and I were an avatar, I was computer-generated, I knew to ask these questions, I knew what the most frequent responses were. If you gave me an incomplete answer, I might ask you a follow-up question. You're much more likely to be 100% truthful about anything that might be a touchy subject, right? Uh, so maybe a sexual history, maybe a disease that you might have had in the past, anything like that. You're much more likely to tell an avatar or a machine that than you are to tell another human being because you don't believe that that machine is casting judgment on you, right? So the psychology of how can I help a patient, whether it is someone who needs uh, help socially, someone who needs mental health, 
the thought of a robot companion or using something that provides back and forth answers to someone, it exists, right? And it's still, I think, in its very early stages. But the idea that something um, can pick up sentiment, it, once something knows me well enough, it knows my voice. Probably can tell when I'm happy or how quickly I'm talking when I get excited about something, right? Or if I slow down or if, I, you know, if it sounds like I'm upset or sobbing about something, right? The, the machines are getting better at understanding sentiment the same way that Twitter and the other platforms understand sentiment analysis around here's Bill Geigner, here's Jack King, here's what they're saying, and these are the verbs they're using about these things. That technology will get better and better over time, but it's got a long way to go before it's going to replace the emotional connection that two people can have together. Well, that, and then that's if you're face-to-face. -face. I mean, I still can text something, type something on Facebook, and someone doesn't get sarcasm. And this is a human being, right? They're reading it and they don't get yeah, it. Yeah. Like, you know, how am, I, how am I supposed to get a computer to understand this if I can't get a human being to understand that I'm right. completely pulling their chain? Like, right. you know, so, but, so, but we've got the difference between, um, the, like, the technology stuff. Obviously, I'd like to see things get better for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. And then I watch some sci-fi stuff for that stuff. Did you see the uh, ghost in the shell? No, I didn't. Oh my gosh. Check that out. Okay. So that is a, ghost in the um, shell. besides, besides uh, Scarlett Johansson being quite the eye candy to watch. <laughs> okay. Every, everybody in this, I can't remember what year it is. It's, it's, it's far off in the future. Everybody is where we're headed. We're with like uh, the uh, Elon Musk Neuralink everybody's enhanced in some way or another, right? So sure. like uh, a cop lost his eyes in a, a raid that they did. He got both of his eyes burned out and he had, you know, robotic eyes put in, but now he's got infrared, x-ray, you know, he can do all this stuff. Um, one, of the, one of the guys, the, one of the cops just for shits and giggles had his liver uh, changed so he could drink more. Sort of thing. Right? So, but everybody has enhancements of sure. some sort. So you're like a combination of bio and technology. And yeah. like, I would be, you know, if there was some like, so I've, I've looked a little bit at the Neuralink stuff and then like some of the things where they're talking about, you know, we all walk around with our, with our, you know, supercomputers and everything else. If you could have that just plugged into your head and say, Hey, call Jack King. And right. boom, you, you know, you're talking to you. I'm talking to you in my head. First, you got to make sure you're not schizophrenic because you know, you could just not be talking to Jack King at all. But <laughs> how much more freeing would that be? Right. If you could ask for directions and then, you know, or take a download or the other one is like, I remember the first time my boys saw the matrix and I'm like, wouldn't it be awesome if someone could just plug you in and boom, you know, Kung Fu. Like right. it would be incredible. And then the other thing would be you would reform the entire education system because you'd no longer need to sit in the classroom and waste all this time. You could just download American history. You could, and some of that stuff, when I, when I say that we should be, this will come off wrong for a lot of people ruled by some sort of AI, the AI can look at situations and not forget history it can have all this stuff right in the front of its mind as far as no, you know, nationalism does nationalism sounds good at first when you're all running around with American flags, 
seems wonderful, but sooner or later you're, you're saying, well, you're not one of these, so then we need to kill you Nazis and stuff like that. That's how we end up with that situation. Sure. So, you know, if you, and the problem that I get, that get, we get hung up on is the political thing. I'll say something like Al Gore, the worst thing that Al Gore ever did for the environment was not to get a Republican to do those tours with him. If the two of them would have gone together, it couldn't have become an issue that was right and left. So now when, a, when someone on the left says, well, look at the data, the yeah. planet is warming and CO2 is a part of the equation, they go, oh, that's pinko left-wing bullshit because Al Gore. If Al Gore was never involved, if it was just some guy, you know, uh, Carl Sagan or something like that, we could have this be different. So if it was AI and they could just weed through it, I'm positive that there's things like, for me, it seems like from the data that I've read, and I would like to have it you know, presented to me differently, it, there seems to be so many upsides to maybe just a, a broad net socialized medicine at the bottom, but still having private stuff that you could pay for, you know, if you wanted better, you know, like programs and stuff like that or better insurance to add in there, you know, platinum plans or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. At least everybody's caught, everybody's got preventative care. Mm-hmm. And in the end, we can pay less for the, the process. Yeah, it's, I think it's, there's a lot of waste in the current system. I'd be the first one to agree with you. When you look at the percent of GDP that we spend on healthcare relative to our outcomes, it's, it's not healthy at all, right? It's not only are we it's, not it's, getting- And people don't understand that. I hear these right. people say things that they heard on a certain news network sure. that we have the best uh, something in the world. The data does not support that at all. We are the most unhealthy. We have the worst mortality rates and the highest cost. But but there's no doubt that we spur a lot of innovation, whether or not you love them or you hate them, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, things that push the needle and move things forward tend to happen a lot in this country, right? And I know they happen in other places too. Our healthcare delivery system needs a lot of you're looking right. at an optimization. I'll be the first one to say that. I, I'd like to think about it a little bit differently though, Bill. And I think a good example of this is if we just flip to another industry or area where you see public-private relationships that are thriving. Look at SpaceX right now. Look yeah. at things that are going on between NASA and SpaceX, right? Where this partnership is yielding great things for both sides because they each have something that they're bringing to the party. I want to see something like that happen with healthcare, right? Um, I, I, I am a very firm believer that hybrid models that are built to pivot and swing can bring us the biggest value that you can ever imagine. When I hear people talk about the cloud, my head wants to explode because the cloud's always existed. It's some Somebody else's data center. Yes, the idea that there's a larger public cloud presence, much larger, right, with Microsoft Azure or Google or AWS with Amazon. Um, you know, there's lots of great things that are happening in the way that we compute, the way we consume compute power, where we store data, what happens. That's all great. But guess what? The real moments still happen out at the edge. The real moments still happen in the doctor's office, in the emergency room, in the hospital, all the rest. This data is great. But the other thing people forget 
around data is that data represents reality. It isn't the reality, right? The phenomenon is something else. It's human beings, it's outcomes, it's these other things. So as great as data is, and it helps us to understand what might occur from, uh, as, as, and what did occur, right? As long as it's accurate, we can start to pivot the model to a predictive model to your point. And I have, a, you know, you, you talked about something before, and I want to go back to this because it's, it's simple, but powerful. I have a very dear friend of mine and he basically was alerted that he had AFib from his watch. He had a new Apple watch and he had it on not too long. And it kept saying, you know, are you doing X? Are you doing Y? He said, you are, you have AFib, right? You need to see your doctor about this because yeah. signs of this called the next day. Sure enough, he had AFib, right? God knows. I, I love the guy to death, but he might not be around. This was, uh, you know, two years ago, I think with the last model that came out, but I the idea that something like that would, you know, like if you can put into something, cause I don't have an Apple watch and yeah. I would think about getting something like that, mm -hmm. but like my oxygen saturation is not the same as if I was walking around Sure. because I don't have the diaphragm muscles. So my lungs don't open to the capacity that they used to at one time. Sure. So I wonder if I'd get some false readings off of something like that too. Yeah. The thing that's interesting is, you know, the concept of more precise medicine, right? Not just, am I wearing a sensor, but what is the right threshold for the sensor to be tuned to for me, right? Because you just said my normal O2 level might be, you know, five points lower than someone else who's up walking around because their lung capacity is taking a lot more in and out. We're getting to the point where you can tune those things and you can do that. Yeah. We're actually getting to the point that post-surgery, if you're monitoring a patient and you can tell based on their heart rate and their body temperature and other signs that they likely have an infection before the lab test even comes back. So things have gotten to the point where the predictive capabilities are there if you're getting the data fast enough, you're, you know what the data should look like. And then if there's a variation in the data, when to get involved and to your point to double check it to make sure it might be normal for this person we have to find out but yeah. you know to bring this thing full the kind of innovation that we're enjoying today isn't going to come out of socialized medicine alone okay right. so i think that we have to all agree that there's a balance that can come from this everyone deserves to have access to quality health care and good outcomes i'm a very firm believer that technology while it doesn't solve the problem technology isn't the strategy, it supports the strategy. The strategy should be to make healthcare more accessible, more affordable, get greater value out of it and lead to better outcomes, which is, and it does mean, it needs to flip from a reactive model to a proactive model, which starts in, at a much earlier age. And that technology that we're wearing, that technology that we're involved with every day can feed right back into our electronic medical record. Your doctor, the same way that, you know, it, it kind of makes me wonder why my refrigerator can probably talk back to Samsung over the internet and tell it it needs a part replaced. We'll get, it's, it's sad that we're able to do that with my refrigerator, washer and dryer or any other appliance I have in my house, but we're not yet at that point where necessarily, unless I'm wearing a specific, you know, at home monitoring device to alert my doctor, it's not there, right? I think the price points are coming down. I think that we're, we're living in a world where connectivity is always on. The cost has gone down. There's more sensors than ever before. We could talk about cybersecurity in another episode because that's exploding all over the place because of the always on, the number of devices, the platforms, all these attack vectors that are out there. By the way, that's the other COVID-19 hidden thing that's out there as everybody went to work from home. That became a big issue we can come back and talk about. But the reality to bring this full circle is that 
the innovation that we just talked about in technology that will help bend the cost curve, give people more access to this over time, isn't going to spin itself out of social medicine. It's going to be derived from a, a model that blends the two together, similar to what we're going to see with SpaceX and NASA. That's my belief. So I, I agree a hundred percent with you that there should be a hybrid model. And I agree. My, my problem is, is that we've gotten, it's so polarized now, right? That, that if, when the primary for the Democratic side went on, I was like, oh, here we go again. I got to vote for Hillary 2.0 because I don't want, I, you know what? I just want to go a couple of weeks without hearing what the president has. This. I don't want to, can I just go back to normal life where I don't have to care about this guy constantly? And I don't have to watch like a, a mafia family fleece the country right in front of my eyes. And it seems like no one's watching this place put secret service people in their hotels and do things that are just like mind boggling emoluments clause blowing crazy stuff. I just want just, can we just get back to the regular corruption, not this heightened level of corruption. And so I'm going to vote for whoever's not that guy. So, but, and, I, and I'm pretty much slave to whoever the DNC puts up because we have this stupid two party system in this country. And some of it I think is because we just live in a world where we're so dumbed down that people, I have people that, that truly do not understand how you could possibly have anything but two parties. And I'm like, you just can't, have you ever looked at another countries? Like they have other elect, they have, they have parties, six parties in their country. And then you have to get a, you do a runoff and you, you whittle it down to like, this is not that complicated and they do it in less time than we do it in and everything else this thing where we have this idea that American exceptionalism, exceptionalism, I believe that you, like you said, our children's children are going to live to be hundred years old. Your watch yeah. and things like that are going to contribute to that factor. American exceptionalism is not going to contribute to any of it. You're not going to live longer because you're, we're born on this piece of dirt. It's going to be the things that we do. And if we could get to a point where we could do more of those things, that'd be great. When you said a hybrid system, I think I'm all about building floors, right? So if there's a floor that we cannot let the general population fall below, right? Let's make a floor for education. Let's make a floor for healthcare and stuff like that. And then everything that's above that, we can use the hybrid model where we say, Listen, if you want it to be faster, if you want to do the, you know, you want to get to the front of the line at Great America, you got to buy the speed pass, man. So then pass, you're going to, yeah. right, the fast pass deal, which, you know, everyone thinks is kind of bullshit anyway, because you're the guy waiting in line and then everyone's walking yeah. in front of you. But hey, man, we're, we yeah. live in America. I hustle, work more, do more. Um, you know, the, I don't want to be a guy that like, I love my neighbors. I like people but I find people to be generally fairly lazy in their thoughts and fairly lazy in their ability to do things too. Like when I watch people parent, I look at them and I'm like, you're not doing enough. You're not doing anywhere near enough. You're spending too much time. You're, you're in your forties. The time for thinking about what you want to do with your time. That, that was 20 years ago, dude, that's over with. When you're at the bar doing shots of rumple mints, that's when that went on. Now it's all about what these guys are doing. And like, it's depressing to me 
that we look at one of these uh, immigrant families where the parents have the kid in two sports, violin, he's studying two languages, and he's going to be a heart surgeon. And you know what? If two of those, three of those things fall apart, he's still going to have the other ones to fall back on. And I got people that are having a hard time getting their kid to soccer practice. Like, yeah. well, well, like, how low do we need to set this bar for you to like manage this thing? And then I don't want to be heartless, but it's the same thing with the COVID thing. There's very little that you have to do. You have to stay six feet apart and wear a mask, maybe wash your hands, that kind of a thing. Listen, don't go sit at the bar and get drunk and fall over each other. This is the thing you can't do just for a little while now. And they can't manage that. They can't manage this little tiny thing to do. They can't manage that. They, they can't manage to, it just makes me nuts that you, we, we, I don't know, we live in this world where it's, it's, it's so little is expected of you. I went from the construction world to the business world where I was doing a realtor's job. Mm-hmm. And I was flabbergasted by the fact that most people in a business setting don't do very much work. That's what I came away with. I watched people in the office and I'm like, they're, they're, they're maybe getting their job done or whatever like that. But the amount of actual work that they're doing. And then if I went into other businesses with the construction stuff, it's amazing to me to see how many Facebook apps are opened up on people's computers and everything else. Listen, when I'm in a construction job, I don't have time for that at all. None. You don't have time for a little bit of marketing on Facebook where I take some pictures of the job throw it up on social media. And then tonight I'll try and answer the comments or something like that. Yeah. But that's just me working still. These people that are at their jobs or secretaries, they're just cat videos and nonsense. I think to myself, I go, I I don't know if I felt like I didn't want to do anything. I should have got into another profession because (laughs) if I don't pound those nails, they don't get pounded. So like, this is how it goes. Yeah. Um, So like, yeah, yeah, I mean, and technology's everywhere. We got to find a way to convince society to take advantage of it in a way that's productive, not mind melting. And I don't know, like, I almost feel bad. Like, I feel like people must be so miserable that they're looking for that dopamine hit off of Facebook or social media just all the time because they're not getting it in their life otherwise. I mean, yeah. What are we doing wrong? Is there not enough, like, there must not be enough sex. There must be not enough. Like, it's the, um, I don't know if you ever heard the, uh, the rat in the cage. Uh, um, there, there was a test in, like, Sweden or Norway where, so we have the one where we took a, a rat, we put him in a cage, we put food, water, and then a cocaine drip, right? And the rat decided that the cocaine was the most important thing and he forego food and water to get the cocaine. But he was just in a cage. The people in Sweden took this rat. They put him in a rat paradise where he had games and plenty of female rats to have sex with and plenty of foods he wanted to eat and things to crawl around on and puzzles to figure out and everything else. And then over there, they put the water, the food, and the cocaine. He didn't even fuck with the cocaine. He was good. He didn't even get addicted or anything like that because he had all these other things to stimulate himself. I don't understand. There's so many things to, like I said, when we were kids, there was three channels on the TV. Yeah. Now 
you can literally find anything that you want to watch right now when you want to watch it. But people decide to watch the semen demon doctor lady instead of something that's important or something that's, you know, going to broaden their horizons or, or something like that. It, yeah. There's, I have an app right now that I'm learning to speak German for the last like year and a half. And the app is immersive. Like if I'm in that app, I I know I'm doing the thing the social dilemma says not to do. I'm getting a lot of screen time, but I'm getting it productively. Interesting. So like there's so many good things that you could do with the technology, but the general public decides no. Yeah. I I think that it's being conscious, right. In, I guess, um, making sure that we're intentional and being aware uh, what we become, what we think about leads to what we become, right? Our thoughts got our actions and our actions tend to lead to our outcomes. And if you don't think about it and you're just sort of a, you know, a boat with no sail up or don't understand the direction and which way you're going, it's pretty easy to just fall into the waters of wherever the tide is taking you right at the particular moment. And I don't know that people, it gets back to, um, awareness, it gets back to level of engagement, which I guess is another way of saying, you know, whether or not people are go-getters or want to hustle or are lifelong learners, as I would say someone like you is, who's always consuming that content and trying to understand what's going on in the world and, you know, uh, curious about other people's philosophies and how do we solve these problems. You know, a lot of, a lot of folks lack that innate curiosity. And I think when that isn't there and they don't have another good example for it in their lives, it's easy to kind of just drift along and, and get your time, um, you know, used in, in another way. The one thing you realize is I think, are you just about 50 or you turning 50 this year? I'll be 50 in June. Yep. In June. Yeah. I got a little more half a year yet. Yeah, All right. Much. So you got one more happy year. Well, a lot of myself and uh, your other former Linkway alum have, have hit the number this year, as you probably have yeah. noticed on social media. And the one thing you start to realize is, you know, I can always, money's easy to make, quite frankly. It's real easy to make when you're in technology. But the interesting thing is you can't make more time. You know, once it's gone, it's gone. And if you don't spend it on the right things and the older you get, you realize I can't get that back. I, I'll never get that back, right? So you have to be careful in uh, about where you ration your time. So during the COVID-19, there's a lot of doom scrolling going on and people TikToking and whatever else, right? Because they're in the house or their normal patterns have been disrupted. I think the other, I guess this is the double-edged sword of technology. While it could take you to the fantasy land of, you know, a giant time suck that you'll never get back, you can also be using it to do what you just said, which is give me a reminder. My reminder pops up on my watch, Bill, because you're starting to catch the trend. Almost everything happens either through this phone or this watch. For better or for worse, it keeps me where I need to be. It reminds me as long as I've told it and I've advised it what I want to do, right? If I go over four hours of, of time with social media in a week, it's setting off an alarm, right? It's doing yeah. those different things. So if I didn't tell it to do that, I wouldn't be aware of it. So I think you're going to see people starting to consume things differently once they're aware of just how much time they've wasted by not consuming it carefully, right? But in most cases, they're not aware of it. Now, do you think, Jack, that, that like... So we've, they've done studies that they say that like your happiness is raised exponentially as you get to like, a, you know, we'll just say an arbitrary number right now because it's going to change over time. But like $75,000 a year was the number that was in this study, right? Where yeah, I remember if, you made, right, if you make 35 grand a year and then you make 45 grand a year, your happiness goes up because 
Now you're feeling more secure with what you can do. When you get to 75,000, everything that you make over that just doesn't seem to, to, to do anything for you because your basic needs and things are already met. You, you've got it covered sort of thing. So like, I, I almost feel like I'm not a conspiracy theory guy that we are kept in a, if you look at what the, the, the average income in is, it's under 40. It, it's, it's, you know, I think it's closer to $30,000 is the average income across the country. To me, that's insane. Like that's crazy low, right? I mean, I've had years, 20 years ago that I made well over a hundred and some odd thousand dollars in construction. Sure. I couldn't imagine trying to get by on 30 and that's an average. So that means there's people making under that. Now, if you're that person making, I, I can't even wrap my brain around 30, but $40,000 a year, you are constantly got to be like, I got to, I got to get to that next thing. Awesome. If, yeah. yeah. If I don't, I'm not going to eat or I got to get on welfare. I got to do something else. I got to rearrange my situation. But if you're a guy that makes $125,000 a year, you've got more time to kind of relax and think about things. I was forced into a situation to really, I would say I was way more conservative leaning with my political thoughts before I was injured. Yeah. When I had months and months to look at ceiling tiles, when I was, you know, in the halo and the whole yeah, thing, the yeah. tubes in me and everything else, you start to think, extrapolate these things out. And this is another reason, like, I, lo I love the podcast situation because I can have a long form conversation with somebody about something. My only obstacle is, is that I Miranda with my thoughts and my own talking goes all over the place, but it's not a five minute segment. So I can, I can get more out of it. Sure. But when I start to wrap my brain around solutions to problems, I start to come up with this conspiracy theory that our government and wealthy people would like to keep us in a situation first where we're fighting over religion and color and all this other stuff. Because if we ever realize who the, 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 the dynamic that I think people need to realize is, is that every consumer in one way or another is the prey and every corporation is the predator. You are your dollars that you hard earned are being seeked out by those corporations. And like I was talking to you last night about that Reagan's thing. Yeah. He devised a system where he made people believe that if you gave corporations tax cuts, they would let it trickle down to you and you would get these things from the, the great father, the corporations would hand them. To, and that's just complete bullshit because when you're in a corporation, you hire people to figure out how do we turn down all these trickles? I got to keep some of this dough for myself. <laughs> so if people would operate more on the, I know I'm the, they, they need to realize that they're the rabbit. I think there's a lot of people out there that are walking around thinking they're the lion and they don't realize that they're the rabbit. You're the rabbit dude and Procter and Gamble and United Airlines and all these other big things. Uh, you know, Amazon, they're the predator and you've got to be buyer beware. You've got to watch what you're doing. And I look at the government as the shepherd, right? So we're the sheep for lack of a better word. I mean, every Fox news watcher is going to tell me I'm a sheep bull or whatever like that. But we're the sheep. The government needs to be the shepherd. So it's protecting you from the lion or from the predator that's out there. Maybe they're the guardian of an ecosystem. Like I've got this ecosystem behind me here. Mm -hmm. 
I need to keep feeding the bottom of this ecosystem to keep the ecosystem going. If the only thing I did was feed the biggest fish in there, sooner or later, he's going to die too because there's not going to be enough little things for him to eat. So the conspiracy theory that I'm talking about is that if we were, there's, there's enough natural resources and enough wealth in this country, especially this country, we shouldn't have anybody struggling to get an education. We shouldn't have anybody struggling to get good health care. We shouldn't have anybody struggling for the basics in life. If your basics were covered, I think it would free people up to think bigger about bigger things. Yeah, I think that you, you raised some interesting points. If you go back to what you said about um, basic levels of income and happiness, right? And you think about even having worked the better part of the last 30 years, which I know I've worked full time at least 30 years, right? Uh, right out of school. And, you know, you worked, obviously, you've worked very hard for everything that you have. And, you, you know, you uh, have the fruits of your labor, but you also realize you know, we get a lot of breaks, we got a lot of uh, good things that have happened for us. We were fortunate enough to get good educations in a fairly affluent part of the country when you compare it to many of the rest that you were citing the numbers from. We've been fortunate in that regard, right? And the one thing you realize is that money is temporary, people matter, right? Uh, I deal with all kinds of complex technology and situations that I have for decades. And the technology isn't what keeps me up at night. The people keep me up at night, right? How, when you're responsible for those people and their families and different things along those lines, that's something you think about, right? You want to make sure that you're doing the right thing by them, that you're helping not just your clients or your organization, but the group that you're, shepherding, if you will, to use your term again and trying to help. And the reason I bring that up is I think long-term happiness doesn't come from a number. I think the 20-year-old version of me thought that it was related to some magical number, but believe me, once you hit those numbers, they really don't matter much. It's just a number, right? The reality is that you, uh, the only way that you're truly happy is helping others. So if you get people more engaged in helping others and understanding how they can make a difference and, you know, making a comment on Facebook is, is one thing, but going out and spending your time with your favorite organization, whether it's political or volunteering or doing things like I've done with the Cancer Society, get involved with things that, you know, that you care about. And I think people tend to feel a lot better. I also think it gives people direction. And, yep. you know, hopefully when we get back to some uh, safe stage, it, I'm going to optimistically say maybe by the end of next summer, and we've got, you know, 70 plus percent inoculated or vac vaccinated, and we've got some form of herd immunity, we can get back out into more of those social situations. Because I hope that the new normal is people have had some time to think about what's important. And that's one of the, the good byproducts that comes out of COVID, a better understanding of how we spend our time, what our relationships are, and what really makes us happy. And I do think that as a, as a society, we've got an inflection point right now. Hopefully, we'll have uh, some unification, some much-needed unification in this country where people will start to come back to that middle ground like we talked about, where common sense can prevail and you, we can start a new dialogue. Yeah, and I mean, what you were saying about, you know, getting involved in organizations and stuff like that, I can't describe how um, I, I coach, right? And I, I haven't done that now because the sports thing is completely, it's, it's a shambles, it's a mess, what's going on. Right and now. I don't want to be around um, a bunch of people any, right now anyway, so it's just not, sure. it's not even a thing. But the gratification so, I mean, I've had jobs where we, we did awesome, where we're like, the job went great. It was a three-week job. I mean, we cleared tens of thousands of dollars out of the job. If 
financially it worked out great. The homeowner was thrilled. The finished product was something we were very proud of. Got to take pictures of it. Got that dopamine hicks. I threw it up on social media. You know, so all that was a, a great gratification. It pales in comparison to the fact that when I go to a high school wrestling match, four or five people go, hey, what's up, coach? And stuff like that. That, to me, is, is the best. And I never made a dime. In fact, I used to drive 40 minutes each way to go to practice three nights a week just to do that sort of thing. So I can't stress more to people that they need to find something to do that is selfless as far as that goes. But that leads me back to my other problem. If you only make $30,000 a year, it's real tough to spend the money on the gas. and to, it's, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's, it's really difficult to climb that pyramid or care about the next thing if your basic needs aren't met, right? You're just trying to survive and, you know, throw in a couple more mouths to feed or whatever in an illness or medical. You know, when you think about what happens a lot too often with medical care in this country is, you know, I'd have to look at the latest stats, but I don't know where it is, but I'm going to guess it's rather high on the list of things that cause bankruptcies, right? Yep. So when you look at medical debt and when you look at some of those things that are out there, those are the, the, the um, unfortunate sides of the current system. I do believe that we're on a path to bend that cost curve and to try to move the incentives. And just like the vaccine has been accelerated, I'm yep. hopeful that people will start to see that, you know, being able to reallocate a good chunk of the 19% of our GDP that we're spending in its current form uh, could be well served in, in other ways, right? And I am a very strong believer that technology, it, think about it, what can give access to more healthcare than technology at a lower cost, right? I can't think of it, right? It's the ability to scale. One doctor can see many more patients, especially if it's a routine checkup, right? Or a follow-up. If you needed to go get your blood drawn, um, you know, at LabCorp and it's just a quick follow-up with your doctor and you don't have any other, you know, outstanding symptoms or things to look at, why shouldn't you be able to do a video visit? And to be fair to that doctor, you know, why shouldn't that cost be enough to cover their basic costs, et cetera, but maybe not as much as the in-person visit? There's got to be a happy medium here. Right. But that, so that leads me back to like the whole uh, – wages have stayed very, very flat over the last like 20 years, right? Like the general wages. But productivity because of technology – and I mean people don't seem to realize like technology is everywhere – when I started out in construction, I had a nail pouch, a hammer. The hammer had a gauge on it to gauge the shingle. I would yeah. gauge the shingle, pound the nail. My boss at that time was not interested in spending the money on the compressors and the guns and everything else. When I went into business for myself, I bought the guns and the compressors. I could literally take three guys and do the job that five guys did with those things. The compressors and the guns paid for themselves in the first job done, right. but that's technology. That's also automation. And that's also two guys that don't need a job anymore, or I need more roofing jobs to do. And then I can hire the more guys and then I make more money. Right. But I make more money. The roofer in general, the guy who works for me doesn't make more money. So, you know, if you extrapolate that out and the tech that you're in is that's quantum leaps from a nail gun and the compressor. So you can produce so much more. This will lead me to the Bernie Sanders stuff where it's like there needs to be a 
two or 4% tax on every Amazon transaction to pay for certain things that create a floor so we can have an education system. You know, and then I look at stuff like uh, the Amazon stuff. That guy, I'm sorry, I buy stuff from Amazon. I'm all for somebody creating a better mousetrap, but the system is working out to the tune of Amazon profiting $11 billion a year, paying nothing in federal tax, and every single one of your employees can read, write, and do arithmetic because they went to public schools and you're not paying anything into that. I think there needs to be a highly progressive tax plan that says the more, if you have 100,000 vehicles out there putting potholes in the road, you obviously need to pay a whole lot more towards the roads than the guy pounding nails for a living. And I know that in the last 10 years, I've spent more on federal taxes than Jeff Bezos has, and that makes me sick. <laughs> the real question is, do you have Donald Trump beat? I'm not sure. Oh, right, 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 right. I had to throw that at you just No, I, I'm positive I got him beat. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, the, well maybe the latest return. Yes, right, right, right. <laughs> Um, you know, you raised some interesting uh, concepts. The one thing that I, I'm hopeful, um, all of this is data, right? It's represented by data. The visualization of data is where real power comes from for convincing others or making an argument and, and having things make sense, right? Because even when something is in a spreadsheet, once you visualize it, our brains are better able to understand what does this look like, right? Or what, more importantly, how can I model it and what could or should an equitable model look like, right? I think what you get is, you know, all empty souls tend to have extreme opinions. I, I'm coming to that realization the older I get, right? And I forget who has the original quote, but it just stuck in my head. But you'll get people that as soon as you said the words progressive tax, you'll get people that immediately will, you know, grab the, grab the table and, and, you know, oh my God, do you really know what you're talking about, Bill? And they're not going to stop there. You're going to get, listen, there are currently, there's, there's this yin and a yang, right? Of, and it's going to go back to innovation and then regulation in terms of safety. There's, there's some forms of regulation that help create more equity. There are some things that break up monopolistic markets and tendencies. To your point, the more data we have around where the current spend is and who's doing the spending, like who's enabling what? And is this truly trickling down? Who's benefiting from these investments? And what does it look like? Every year that goes by, we're getting better and better pictures through the equivalent of ERP software of what's coming through the door, what's exiting the door. When you look at the federal budget and the breakdowns, you were citing some of the things that we spend a lot of money on. Do we have to continue to spend 700 and some billion dollars a year on the military? I don't know if we need all of it, Do we, but after I can tell you, flipping back to my brief time in state government, there is a ton of waste in government, a ton. And you know why? Because there isn't the incentives to do more with less. They just aren't. They'll all want to reach in your pocket. And on cold days, they'll put both hands in your pocket. But once you sit there and you look at uh, a department, like $1.3 billion budget at the Department of Innovation and Technology, and which was being run you know, with the best of intentions and had a lot of opportunities for improvement. But when you look at the sort of things that have gone on for decades where there haven't been investments in platforms, things are patched together, the taxpayers paying way more than anybody in private industry would pay for less technology, 
you know, that's where people distrust that the government and the bureaucrats and lifelong government workers in some cases are going to be able to have the sophistication and quite frankly, the incentives to try to build efficiencies into the systems that they're charged with operating, right? And I'm not suggesting that people don't wake up with the best of intentions, but, you know, if the only tool in progress that you saw was, you know, that nail and that hammer and that tool pouch that you were handed from 20 years ago, or the mainframe you've been staring at for 30 years in, in, in a state data center, you know, you're probably not completely understanding what the future can be. Now, the Department of Innovation and the employees there are great people and they care a lot. I was very proud to, to be there and be part of the solution. The thing that you have to ask yourself is, do we really need to be spending all this money on these legacy solutions? Shouldn't we be migrating even more quickly to hybrid cloud, to the right types of solutions going forward to, to drive efficiencies? What I can tell you after spending some time there is the incentives don't exist. The entrenched mentalities, and in particular in a state like Illinois, which is completely union controlled, and I don't have a problem. I'm the son of a union electrician. But they actually did things with their hands and made stuff, right? And a lot of the state workers have a lot of good things that they do, but the system is set up in such a way that the lobbyists and the people that are, are in power are all getting empowered and continue to be empowered through donations. Just take a look at the news media that goes on right now. So I think a lot of this comes back to trust, right? And building trust between parties. And I do think that as unification hopefully continues to reoccur here across the country, we can get people back to the table to have intelligent discussions around where should we have, you know, the right type of compromise here, because I think the art of compromise has been lost at least in the last four plus years. And we're, it's well overdue. And I think we'll be able to do a lot more once it returns. But right now there's a lot of mistrust. Right. So what I'm sort of getting from that is that the only incentive for anybody is monetary as far as if you produce the data that can show them that they can save money by changing to this, they'll do it if they can make mass amounts of money to do it. But if it's just, if it's just a better system for, see, no one's ever a big picture thing, right? So like it's the, I said something about the marshmallow test to, to last night. Right. No one and the marshmallow test is the test where they took little kids and they said, okay, listen, I'll give you a marshmallow now and you can have a marshmallow or wait 20 minutes and I'll give you three marshmallows. And most of the kids take the marshmallow and eat the marshmallow right. where the, the kids, they found out that in the future, the kids with the highest IQs waited the 20 minutes and then got the three marshmallows. Right. right. Most of our, the people I know are at the bar because they want the marshmallow right now. They're not waiting until the COVID's gone so they can get as many marshmallows as they want later yep. save about it so the the problem that i see with trying to convince people that in the long run with data you know like trying to say look at look at if we do this 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 and this you're going to have a better educated populace in the country then you can have a better company for yourself then you're going to have more people that have better incomes that create more customers if you look at a person and say I know you've got a billion dollar industry right now, but it could be 20 billion if you just wait 20 years and do these other things. They don't want the, they want the 1 billion right now, not the, they wouldn't no, Bill, Bill, accept Can you blame them? What does the market reward? This is a 13 week culture. It goes quarter yeah. by quarter. Right. Everybody wants immediate results because that's the culture we've built in America, right? There isn't that level of long-term thinking that goes on because everybody's worried about the next quarter or the current quarter 
our mindsets. Now, that doesn't always work out well, and we've seen that. I think there are companies that set a great example. Look at Costco. Pull up Costco next time you want to look at finances and over time. Oh, I have, I have, who, I have. Who treat their employees fantastically. And watch the, the hockey stick curve right up, and what a great – and they're one of my favorite places to shop. And guess what? I smile every time I walk into the Orland Park Costco because I see the same guy there that was there the first day. And you know what? They, they treat him great. He loves working there. How many of the retailers can you say that you've seen employees and they pay him, I'm sure, a very livable wage. They're known for doing that and right. give them benefits. So, you know, to your point. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't want to no, that's okay. To your point, I think that there's two things when we talk about these concepts. And there's mistrust across the board, right? The companies and the politicians and the employees and the populace don't trust one another for very good reasons in some cases. But you have to apply to, or sort of think about the with them and the with you. The with them is the what's in it for me, right? And you need to have everybody be open about what's in it for them. And if there isn't something in it for them, then you've got to be realistic. How anxious are they going to be to, to, to subscribe to that? Right. If you think about the, the with you, the what's in it for us, this all goes back to the concept that we opened up talking about. It's change. People don't, people, you know, want to change on their own terms and on their own time, right? So if you can get them to understand the with them and the with you over a period of time, and you can build trust to show those outcomes, and you can use the data to do that over time, I think you can achieve a lot more. But you have, trust is the foundation, whether it's, you know, the team that I'm currently working with right now with the current employer, or any of these teams that I've been a part of in the past, every high performing team that I've been a part of had is the foundation and we need a lot more trust in and hopefully we'll get more of it soon right okay so i've got a bunch of stories that that go right to the all the stuff we've been talking about the the i'm a real estate broker when i first got over at uh colo banker there's a lot of uh um older gals that are in that in that business right and to say that they were computer illiterate would be an understatement like explaining, copying and pasting to them was, it was like trying to get my grandma to set the alarm clock on the VHS, right? It was like <laughs> constantly doing this thing. And you, know, you're, you don't seem you're like you're ever going to get it, grandma. Right. But um, I don't, maybe just like me stopping by, I don't know. But so, but once you could get these people to understand that job was a, like I came in at a weird time. That job was a job where a guy would show up there every week. He'd have these printed books with the with the, the all the listings in the book, and he would show up every week. And he goes, "You got any more listings?" So I could put them in the book. And I just thought to myself, "This is the craziest thing in the world. Right. You're literally going to take my paperwork back to your office, put the picture in the book, write everything up, bring the book back, and then I'm supposed to look through the book." I can do all this data entry right here into my computer right now. It's all right there right now. And it's all done. And it's, and I can just like filter it looking for things like instead of flipping through a freaking book of all the listings in the area, right? It's a way more efficient way of doing the job. It has created the job to be that job is everyone thought that job was super easy. Like you were making easy money doing nothing 20 years ago. They weren't. They were driving around to get every signature. If you had an offer for a property, you had to get a hold of the seller, get them at a table, bring the buyer in at the table, look each other face to face and hand this offer over. No DocuSign. Yeah. yeah, right. Oh my God, DocuSign. DocuSign is from heaven. 
I'm not even religious, but DocuSign is the most, these people would drive around getting signatures and then someone would change something. You got to drive around, get initials. Everything is clickety click. Everybody that I send it to, it's on their phone. They click, click, click. Everything's on there. It's tabbed out like an attorney would tab everything. Yeah. It has made that job so much better, so much easier to do. And if you were a real estate broker, far more profitable. You're not driving the way you were. And if you could just now, a listing has like 30 photos on there right now, right? If I could just convince my clients to please look at all the photos, please look and look and look and look, because I'm going to take you to this house and it's going to look exactly like the photos. So if you, if you rule it out now, let's not go look at it. Time, yeah. Right. So like ever, all of this stuff is being streamlined that way. It's so, so much better technology will make the world better. It will make the, it could free you up to be able to have bigger thoughts about bigger things. It could free you up to learn another language, take up oil painting, make yourself happier because you can do this job this way. Um, then back to the, the two companies. Yeah. I, sh I lived in Manhattan. Sam's club was 10 minutes away in Joliet, 10 minutes it would take me to go to Sam's Club, load up on whatever I wanted to, go home. I started reading about Costco, reading about the way that they're hiring and paying a living wage, reading about what the CEO takes as compensation right. and stuff like that. And reading about like how they even, when markets change, they put like a newsletter out saying, hey, our distributor is charging more. We're not trying to charge, like all this kind of stuff to try and work with the consumer sort of thing. Yeah. Yes. I decided, okay, I'm going to go from, I live in Manhattan. I'm going to drive to Orland and go to Costco instead. Here's the thing that I found. Uh, both stores pretty comparable on the things in the store, right? Like I can get the, the goods that I want. Um, a couple of things are different place to place. It's a world of difference with the people that work there. Yeah. The people that work there are happier. They're uh, I'll tell you what, the parking lot's cleaner. The uh, the front entrance to the play, the common areas are cleaner. And I honestly believe it's one of the employees is a happy guy, looks down, sees the paper cup, picks it up, throws it away. The other place like, fuck this place. I ain't doing shit to pick up nothing. You know what I mean? He's not, he's paying me eight bucks an hour. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So, and it drives me nuts that we don't, Jesse Ventura had a video out years ago that said people get, there's some syndrome that, that we have that we we worry a lot about the people economically that are just below us, just right below us. We worry about those people. So the, the vast majority of our society is very worried about a minimum wage, but no one's ever worried about a maximum wage. You know what I mean? Like no one ever looks at something. You're in the healthcare industry. I pulled up a, a, a graphic the one time having like the eight biggest uh healthcare insurance companies and their ceo compensation mm -hmm. it was mind-blowing that a guy that works for american healthcare could make 89 million dollars per year in his compensation and that's public knowledge that this is what he gets compensated annually and people are mad at something like obamacare which is pretty much a website to get you to buy private insurance saying that that's the reason that your healthcare went up. The reason your healthcare went up is you buy it through a private company and the private company decided to raise the, the, the thing so they could pay a guy 
$90 million a year to come up with what? I don't care what you're doing work-wise. I don't care if this guy works 125 hours a week. He's not doing anything worth $90 million a year. He's just right. not. Right. So why not? Why don't we? And I, I guess the Jesse Ventura thing sounded interesting. I would rather that we had a progressive tax plan that prevented that guy from being compensated $90 million a year. And then that money went towards education, healthcare, those kind of things. I understand that that's the libertarian person is upset that you're taking that money from someone who's making that money, but we're never going to make a maximum wage. Like Jesse Ventura said, we're never going to say that guy can only make $8 million a year. Right. right. So you got to do something to structure this thing where the shepherd has some sort of control. It's yeah, just, I, you know, no, that's, that's really, you know, you're citing an example that I think outrages a lot of people because uh, there are a lot of different systems, processes, and organizations involved in the delivery of healthcare, right? And it is ridiculously complex. I was very excited to hear when, um, you know, Amazon and uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, and I think there's one other organization decided they were going to try to do something with healthcare, right? Whether it was on-site employee clinics, different things. It's been two, three years now. I think they even went through one CEO that was a doctor. They're still struggling to come up with a model, right? It is complex. There are a lot of bright minds that are looking at it. There are some extreme examples, I think, of greed that you're pointing out, I think, one of them. The, the reality is it comes back to governance, ethics, and what people are willing to tolerate. All of these large organizations, you know, these CEOs didn't walk in and build their own package. Some board gave it to them. So the real question is what's going on in the boardrooms and what's going on with governance around boards and CEOs, right? And how do you kind of curb the rise of inequality there? And what do you look at? Right. So that gets back to controls. That gets back to processes. That gets back to what the heck's going on where any one person could be worth this amount of money. It's a good, it's a good and a fair question. Um, and believe me, I'm sure with the egos involved, they've, they've you know, done to use your term, the mental gymnastics to justify that nine times a Sunday because they're the, the second coming and deserve, you know, I really should have got a hundred million. I gave you a break and gave you 10 million off. Right. right. Um, but this all starts and ends with what's accepted by those who should be governing. And it goes back to stewardship. If you're being a good steward of an organization, their money and what's going on, particularly in the nonprofit world, you should be thinking realistically about how does this look, uh, you know, based on our mission, are we living our values, right? This gets back to some of the basic things. And I think it ties back to, you know, things that got out of control with greed. And we've seen it before when we grew up in the 80s and the 90s, right? Greed is good. No, no, greed is ridiculous at that point. Efficiency is good. Using technology to free up our time to do other things is good. Laying people off and not reskilling them, retraining them, creating new opportunities with the efficiencies that come from that. That's what needs to be done. That's what good moral, you know, citizens want to do, I believe in most cases. Right. Uh, but I, I believe that there wasn't that much awareness. I think it goes back to the whole concept of stockholder supremacy, right? And people thinking that, well, we have to do everything we can to squeeze every last bit of profitability out of this for a shareholder. Well, hold on. What about the community you operate in? What about the people who are giving all of their time a day, et cetera? So, no, don't get me wrong, Bill. I'm as, as big of a capitalist as they come, right? But I am a realist as well. And I start to look at what is sustainability? Well, those type of outrageous things aren't sustainable 
I believe they're probably part of the underpinning of a lot of the mistrust that exists today because people see this stuff and it's like, hey, my poor neighbor had a heart attack and now he's losing his house and he's in bankruptcy. But, you know, hey, the insurance company that fought him about paying every claim, the guy got a $90 million bonus, right? That right. I'm not, I'm saying that facetiously, right? But yeah, when, sure. people see, when people see those types of things, how can they not feel like, hey, this is broken or how can we ever trust the system that rewards this kind of behavior? But in the end, you have to ask yourself, how is that behavior allowed? How can any conscious person who sits on that board think that justified? And those are the types of things that transparency, which was the other thing you were talking about, transparency and sunlight get a lot of good things done. They really do. Corporate integrity is real. And those who lack it have, I think, uh, a lot coming their way. They're going to learn a whole lot in a real hard way over the next 10 years. Because I don't, I think the transparency with all of this data, there's more publicly available information than ever before. The backroom deals and things that went on, there's a lot more disclosure that needs to happen. And boards that permit this type of thing, the members are going to be called to task. People aren't just going to sit on the sidelines. People are going to say, how can you let that happen? So. So you're a guy that part of your job would be to take data and bring it to light, right? To, to show someone the data, right? So you would collect, analyze, and then, I mean, do you use data to persuade somebody? Sure. Absolutely. We use data. I mean, how do you do that in a world where everybody is so fixed? I mean, I've had conversations with some like right-wing people about something completely unrelated to this, like gun control or something like that. And I'll bring up, like it's the most ardent, uh, everybody needs a gun, will stop crime if everyone's, if Grammy's just carrying a gun in her bag and everybody's just locked and loaded all the time. We live in a police state. This is the way we got to do it to like, we need the wild, wild west to happen. This is these people's mentality. And then I start bringing up all these things that are actual, reasonable gun control things. And the guy literally looks at me and goes, you're making all these great points, but I just can't change my mind. So how do you get someone when you have, is it a trust issue? I'm trying to like wrap my brain around because data is data. And if you don't cherry pick it and you don't, if you just, if you, if you, if you took somebody's business and you said, this is the current way you're doing business, but I have this data that says, if you just do it like this, you can double your profits and it's real. This is real. I haven't picked it because I've got some bias that's trying to get you to change your business. I'm sure that they would change their business if they trusted the source that it's coming from. So how do you get people to change their mind to the data? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things, right? Data plus opinion kind of equals persuasion and outcomes, right? That's all factors in, in how you get to things. In my experience, you first have to meet people where they are understand how, you know, what their inclinations and current view are, and then ask questions. Why do you believe that? What makes you feel that way? And if you don't hear them citing data and only opinions, or, you know, that's all I, basically the old, that's the way we've always done it, or that's, you know, the way my dad did it or whatever else, right. they're probably repeating, people tend to repeat what they know, right? That's what human beings do. That's their safe place where they come from things. If you ask them, what are you trying to do? This is one of my favorite things whenever I go into a new organization, because data is extremely powerful, right? Extremely powerful, but only if it's persuasive enough to get you to change your behavior. So a couple of things need to happen. Number one, I need to understand 
what do you think is happening today, right? Where are you at with this and where do you think it is? And then what would it take for you to change your mind to, to lead to a different outcome, right? So if this were a conversation in a new organization and I might be meeting up with a finance group to say, uh, what can our technology and data services group do differently for you? Nine out of 10 traditional folks would say, well, you see this report? I just need this report to include these other fields or I just need whatever you have to ask the next question. What are you trying to do with the other fields, right? Well, I really need to know when Timmy or Billy over here didn't do X, Y, and Z, and they missed these MRIs or these other things didn't happen. And, you know, I, I'm trying to go back and that way I can go correct Timmy and Billy and tell them they need to do this. Well, okay. I can make you a prettier report that does those things. But what I really, once I understand what you want to do with the data, right? And by the way, their opinion today is my customers, patients, whoever is complaining because of Timmy and Billy, right? So I need to figure out how to prevent what these jokers are doing. So the reality is I want this report. And then you have to ask the next question. But by the time I produce this report, the data is no longer your patient, your customer, your whatever already had a bad experience. What if real time I knew that you had to put 20 patients a day through that MRI or CT machine and at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning, we had scheduled or expected eight people to go through it and you only had three go through. Wouldn't you want to know right there while there's still people sitting in the waiting room instead of showing up on the court? Well, yeah, I guess I would. In those particular situations, we're using the data that could be more real-time analytics, convincing them that the thought of something actionable that they could still get involved with could change an outcome versus showing a red color for a crappy outcome that just happened for my customer or my patient, right? Sure. So it's getting them to think completely different. Now, that isn't an apples to apples analogy, but you just asked, how do we use data? Until I understand, well, what exactly do you believe about this and the data that you're using? And, and by the way, what are you trying to do with it? Because in the long run, by you asking that question in the case of that discussion, do they feel unsafe? Have they or a family member been attacked? Did they have some bad experience? Understand where they're coming from, and then you can customize the response in the form of a question which shows that you care about them, creates a relationship, and also that's your bridge to persuasion. Yeah, see, that's what's crazy to me. You need, you need to, in, in, you know, utilize sales techniques to persuade someone on data. And, like, that, that's what drives me nuts. It's like these – I almost want to be like, this is the hard facts. Like, when, it, when, it, when it's a situation that's not, you know, in business or something like that, yeah. there's definitely construction stuff that's exactly like that. Hey, let, look at this is your project. This is your project if we use this maintenance-free material that you're never going to have to paint. You need to think long-term. You're going to spend $3,000 every three years to restain this and paint it and everything else. Or you can spend $4,000 this one time. Right. And you're, you, in the long run, so this is the data. It's, it's, it's going to end up being a better project. The like total this. cost of ownership is acquisition plus ongoing maintenance. Right, equals right, right. Yeah. So if I, but I, and I agree. If I showed up and said, hey, this is good. This is junk. And they might just be like, well, this guy's just trying to sell me the thing. Right. Here. He, you're going to make more money if you give me this bill. Right? right. When I explain to them, I go, listen, honestly, we have, uh, we have two products that we're using right now. One is a, uh, a pre-finished painted um, product that we put on these canopies. And the other one is this uh, PVC. The PVC costs more for the material the uh, LP smart side, which carries a 50, it's great product, comes pre-finished in like 18 different colors. It costs less to buy the material 
but it takes more labor to do that because we have to caulk and paint and touch everything up and everything else. I actually make more money selling you this one than I do this one, but they end up being the same cost, the product in the end. You know what I mean? So like yeah. I make them know that if you can purchase the more expensive material, understand I'm not going to make a dime more. In fact, I may make less putting the better material on there. Your margin on that product might be less. I got you. Yes. But you're in the end, you're going to spend less because five years now it's going to look great and you're not going to have to do anything with it sort yeah. of thing. So these are the hard facts. I have to take tack in the way that I present that to them. Yeah. And there are times when it's just a conversation with somebody who wants to argue with me about a mask that I'm just like, Hey, fuck you. <laughs> I'm tired of this shit. Listen, if I, you know, like I need to do metaphors with these people. Right. If, I, if I was coughing with you, whether I was like this or like this, I, I can I like, can we just like figure this out? The, the amount of misinformation that's out there that sets people into a position. I find the positions lazy and convenient for them. They don't want to do anything so that, you know, that, that they can help. And then, this is the position that they have. And then you can't move them off of it for nothing. Um, yeah. Some of it's fear too. I mean, you know, the, the media is culprit as far as like the gun guy. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people are, there is a lot of fear out there. I think both sides have concerns, but I do, I've started to realize there's only so far you can go. If, if you've tried to reason with someone who's clinging tighter and tighter to their dogma, at some point you've got to let them hold their dogma because that's going to be it. I mean, you are, you're hearing the same stories that I am. Well, it was really depressing early on in this pandemic, you know, to be working in the ICUs and, uh, you know, bringing in iPads with programs so that people could say goodbye to their, to their families. This stuff's real. And we're watching people die from it, but you're also hearing the stories of people saying, Oh, this is all a hoax as they're, you know, gasping their last breaths. It's so it's somewhat surreal, and I think one of the other things that would be fascinating. I'm not a medical doctor by any way, shape, or form. Right. I have a lot of understanding of medical procedures and hospitals and and processes and surgeries, but I'm not a doctor. The one thing that really intrigues me is what type of psychological things are going on that causes someone hooked up to that are literally four feet from them, showing their declining current state and impending death that are going to sit there and say, oh no, but they can't be happening because this is all a hoax. I mean, the denial that goes with that and people clinging to it right up to the last minute just shows you that there's something that I'm clearly not licensed in this state to deal with. But the fact that it exists and that it could exist and someone can take it with them to the grave is, is scary, right? That's scary. And then the, I don't know, maybe it's grown up in the eighties. Cause I, I, we, you know, I pretty much deal socially with people that are my age you know what i mean so i'm dealing with a lot of people my age and maybe if i had uh, deeper conversations with people that were my son's age in their early 20s and stuff i'd get a different feel for the way that they're thinking about it but this um i and it, it's a terrible thing to say but i get a lot a lot of people who seem like decent people who have written checks to charities then stuff like that that i've seen them do like they, they're decent people say stuff like so it's just a bunch of old and fat people like and stuff like that like how are you possibly this callous that you can do this or they justify things like well bill you're telling me two hundred and sixty-five thousand people have died but 
they all had other things. They were going to die. They were, they had cancer. They were going to, and I'm like, listen, you need to think about these things differently. If I'm on a plane and I have cancer and the plane crashes, I didn't die of cancer, man. I died of the plane crash. So like, and they're like, well, that's not, and I'm like, no, that's exactly it. You, you could have lived with cancer or rebounded or whatever, but you died because of COVID. So like, you know, the only hard number that they can't ever do anything with is 7% of the deaths are people who are relatively young and have no, and this is another one where like the news will say a word, comorbidity, right? right? So they say no other comorbidities, but then they, they don't have time to explain to you that if you smoked for 20 years, that's a comorbidity. If you have diabetes, that's a comorbidity. Hypertension, yeah. Hypertension, if, you're, if your blood pressure is high, if you're, yeah. if you're overweight and people don't realize that if you're a six foot tall man and you weigh 230 pounds, you're obese. Correct, yeah. Like they don't, they don't get that. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm still kind of jacked and I've got a belly, but big deal. <laughs> No, no, no. You're obese, dude. You're so you technically, if you died, you're not going to be in this 7%. If I take 300,000 people and I take 7% of that, that's 21,000 people that were relatively young and the doctors could not find anything in their medical history that they could tie to anything. They died of COVID. Right. There are, so I'm very, I'm completely in, intrigued with the way that the disease has affected different people. I think the data will be fascinating. The good news is I think treatments have gotten better and people are surviving. Unlike the beginning of this, when you saw everybody getting hooked up to ventilators and then the success rate was plummeting and them figuring out relatively quickly, ah, don't put them on the ventilators. If you can avoid that, don't do it. It seems to have changed, right? A, a Not lot a person that I was actually on a ventilator for 21 days too. Wow. So yeah. like, I know what that feels like to come off that ventilator. I had no virus. So like, I didn't have anything impeding me afterwards, but I'll tell you what, I sounded like Minnie Mouse when I, when I had a big tube down my throat for all that time. Right. And I labored, they had to teach me how to uh, frog breathe. So I would like scoop air into my mouth and then push it into my lungs to like, if I was starting to feel like I was getting dizzy or something like that, and I can't even do it now because it was so long ago. But your lungs atrophy. So part of the problem sure. with the ventilator is yeah. your lungs become weak. Now you've got this uh, COVID uh, um, like tar or whatever they're saying is inside of your lungs. Stop right. and scarring. And go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to stop you. But no, no, you're you're, you're, you're spotting. Right, yeah. right. That yeah, right. So we've learned these things. But Bill, here's the thing that you know when I hear somebody say it's the flu. It's not like the flu. And, and I can tell you that two individuals, one friend, uh, one absolute best friend set up in my wedding uh, was affected and was in the hospital on oxygen for four or four days. Doesn't have any, other, I mean, this is a guy that we would see out and about. He doesn't, he's not impaired by anything, right? He happened to get it and, it and it took him down hard. And another guy that I knew that was in the hospital, he probably had more of the comorbidities, right? Thank God both of them ended up okay. But I've never had to talk to them, you know, via Zoom or FaceTime or anything like that when they had a cold or the flu, right? So this is clearly uh, affects people differently. It definitely is serious. I think some of these long haulers that are having the after effects, it's going to be interesting to follow over time. 
I think that because it doesn't affect everyone the same way and we've got variation in outcome, you've got people cherry picking those outcomes to form their opinion versus having an entire data set and now being able to look at it, right? Right. So, it, it, you know, I hate to, there's a lot more to the world than data, right? There's people and human beings, emotions, but the more I understand about how people's minds work and they just tend to pick an outlier or pick something that fits their story, their narrative, their hypothesis then say, yeah, but look, and you're like, yeah, look, you picked one ornament off the tree. That's not the whole tree. Right? So you have to kind of bring them back into this is the reality. It doesn't, what we do know are facts, right? The fact is it doesn't affect everybody the same way, but the reality is we have schools open right now and some of them are doing fine. And you know, generally right. that was a mistake. That was absolutely a mistake that we made early on shutting the schools down. So it turns yeah. out the, the infection rate is actually lower in the schools than it is in Correct. regular yeah. places and stuff yeah. like yeah. that. So, I mean, those are things that we, and boy, it shed a light on everything. The, the businesses that were engineered, so they hired engineers to come into a plant and say, how can we make this sausage plant make the most amount of sausage using the least amount of square feet? Well, that doesn't work out with COVID. <laughs> not, so, with a, not with an outbreak, no. Right, it turns out a whole meatpacking plant ends up having COVID and you got big, big problems. Yeah. But, so, but my, my, my situation was how can people be it, it goes back to like the uh, John McCain's of the world and stuff like that, that were, or the uh, Dick Cheney's who were against homosexuality until they had a homosexual in their family. It was like, if it doesn't affect me, the, I got mine, Jack, the let them eat cake situation. It just drives me nuts because the, the person that is 75 years old, maybe they're living in a home, maybe they're not, Listen, if they were only going to get five more years, to me, those five years are the most important ones. Yeah. That's it. That's all I got is five. Now they got none. It's very important to their family and everyone else that they lost those people. Right. It amazes me the way that this administration that's going out now handled this. And we didn't even, tonight, we didn't even talk about the election stuff for a data guy. That's another oh, one. We, we could talk another time. I was working with the state of Illinois during the 2018, uh, you know, election timeframe. Yeah. And we should come back and talk about that at some point. We can go down that rabbit hole, but take the state of Illinois with 101 counties, right? And each county trying to do things their own way. And you get outside of the collar counties and you start to look and go, oh my goodness, variation around these processes is not a good thing when it comes to this, right? It'd be the same thing as going to a doctor who doesn't follow any standard protocols. I'm not saying they aren't well intended, but the variation in things is not good. And we need to have a lot more standards and practices that that are you know statewide and and I would argue nationwide to have some better form of doing these things. But oh, we, can, we can come yeah, back and so, talk about that. right. And I, I would my my that whole conversation is going to lead me to I if my phone can recognize my face, it can take my thumbprint, yep. everything else, and get a code. Yep, I, I can do banking to the tune of fifty thousand dollars. I can transfer on my phone from one account to another account, yeah. why can't I cast my ballot? With so my Bill, with, with blockchain and the other things, yes, and we, yes, did yes, yes. Of, we did some proofs of concept yeah. at the, you know, I had come in just on the tail end of some of the original proofs of concept where they were doing it around uh, deeds and ownership. The idea of having a piece of paper on a car title, that's ridiculous, right? Yes. Or your yes. land titles. 
all those things should be secured electronic documents that have multi-factor authentication that are known in these larger databases. So the sources of truth are spread out and can't be tampered yeah. with. There's yeah, lots of ways. Right. Yeah, well, we should, you could do an entire one on that because that gets to the next level of where we can apply these things to help do what we talked about, right? I think the theme you're going to keep hearing me talk about is trust and transparency. If we all, just like the original days of trade, if we can't agree a foot is a foot, a pound is a pound, we're not going to get anywhere in how we do this. So well, you, you we, could do a whole half an hour just on what is blockchain and what is distributed yeah. ledger and right. all that kind of stuff where people don't. And for me, like I said, I'm constantly taking things in. When I go to sit down for beers with a guy and I have a conversation and he doesn't understand anything, but he's got an opinion. I'm almost <laughs> like, you've got this thing backwards. When you said that pulling the ornament or cherry picking things, there needs to be a class on how you Google or research something because we've done this backwards too. And it's everybody goes and they, they're in a, they're in a social media argument. So they want to run out and they want to go to Google and they want to find the answer that they want so they can copy and paste that thing and throw it up there. What did I lose you? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. okay. You're, you froze up a little on my, am I, am I back on there or am I still frozen? You're still frozen right now. The audio is there. But anyway, so they do it backwards. They search, they Google the answer that they're looking for. Oh. I'm here. How about that? Okay. Uh, but they Google the answer they're looking for. And then when they find that answer, I always want to look at it and be like, bonjour. That's exactly everything on the internet is on the internet that's true. Like it doesn't, you can't Google the answer. You need to Google the question and then decipher what's a reliable source. Like yeah. there, there, there needs to be, if, if we don't get a handle on the way people are using the internet, this thing's going to get out of control. It, it's, it's just going to, I think, no, I think that you're right. When you think about what, <laughs> what we can and should do in order to create people's awareness of what is good data, what is bad data, right? How to evaluate data and what to do with it people have to be taught this. They don't necessarily know it, right? They don't know how to analyze data. They don't know how to ask the next question. And I don't think we're doing enough in school to teach that level of thinking either, right? So I think we've got a lot of opportunity to try to help people get smart, right? About what they're doing and how to evaluate it because we have evidence all over the place, right? Of the folks not even knowing how to do basic research. What amazes me is how people will kind of double down on stupid, if you will, where they have an opinion with no facts. Someone presents them with a fact and an opinion and they immediately attack it and then double down on an unsustainable position. And you're thinking, well, you could at least back up and say, that's an interesting fact. I'd like to find out more about, you know, who published that fact, where did it come from, ask questions about it, and then go back and do your homework and come back and have a discussion, right? So it doesn't mean that just hearing you out means that I agree with you. It means I want to learn more. And by the way, that foundation is missing, right? I think the biggest thing that we can do for our friends, our family, our kids especially, is teach them to be tolerant enough to have these conversations and that it's okay to agree to disagree and be able to still come back to the table and change your mind, right? right? Educated people realize the more that I know, the more I realize I don't know anything, right? So I really should be keeping an open mind to have an understanding. I'm not talking about things that are moral and immoral or right and wrong, you know, you know talk, talk about 
things that are clearly black and white are going to remain black and white for most people, right? right? But when you talk about they can't see a shade of gray, that's a big problem. But we live in a culture where gray doesn't sell, gray doesn't get clicks. Extreme black and extreme white do, right? So any of these extreme opinions are what they go after. Right, absolutely. And that 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 is like, uh, so that's part of the thing with like the whole podcast stuff. If I was, if my complete goal was to say the most outrageous crazy ass conspiracy theories shit and just spend my days trying to do mental gymnastics to prove these crazy conspiracy theories. There are flat earthers out there with YouTube channels with a million subscribers to their YouTube channels and everything that they're saying is almost complete bullshit and people are sucking it up like crazy. My goal with my podcast is to have conversations that do exactly that where I listen to what someone has to say I am actively seeking out people with other opinions on things than me. Right. Um, part of my problem is myself. I try not to, the golden rule is, you know, my father a long time ago said, you know, it's better to be thought of a fool than open your, or silence and thought of a fool than open your mouth and remove all that. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I don't engage in too many conversations in something that I don't, have, have done no research at all on. Like right. there's no, anyone who says cowboy logic to me, you just, I'll just forget it. I don't want to have, I don't really have time to do this thing that we want to have a conversation about things that I've researched and things that you just think. Like right. that doesn't, you're no one. You're a guy that works as a janitor. Not that that's a bad job, but you can't have an astrophysics conversation with me because you don't know anything about it. Yeah. I, you know, that's, I think the art that I had to learn um, and have gotten better with over the years, not perfect, but better, is that when you run into the folks that have the extreme opinions, try to figure out why they have that opinion. And really, I, I think I learned more about it from watching a former colleague um, in interacting with customers. And the way that he did it was by asking questions. And I thought it was fascinating because he was asking questions in that same way that we just talked about. Number one, to better understand where they're coming from because clearly it couldn't make sense, right? Like you're saying, I, I don't understand why you're doubling down on this position that doesn't make any sense and you have no data figure out why they have it. And number two, why do they feel so strongly about it, right? Are they insecure? Did something happen in the past? What is it that's really driving and amplifying that? Because it's not normal, right? Yeah, and you do see that, right? You see people that, I see people that have the strongest, oh, yeah. like, uh, and, and a, a, uh, a virile response and, and this <laughs> thing. And it's always the guy who's completely wrong. And it's always, um, on social media, it is like the, the loudest people are always the goofiest. Like it's, it's, they're, they're, they're coming from somewhere that I don't even get it. And they're so aggravated that you don't understand. And some of them like, man, I, I grew up running around with Danny Shanahan and I, me and that guy, we had a blast, man. Yeah. We were always looking for a laugh. Everything was fun. I can still talk to him. If nothing touches on anything political, we can have a laugh. We can joke about this guy, that guy, all this other yeah. stuff will be fun talk about stories from way back when we did some goofy shit sure the minute that it goes political it is serious and he is aggravated and we're not even allowed to be connected on social media we don't even nothing because 
Bill, I there's times when I don't agree with you on social media, but no, sometimes no, no, I ask no. a question or I'll just poke the bear a little bit, right? It's, but that's okay because that's how we learn from one another, right? Yeah, and just right. like when you say socialized medicine, that in, you didn't see me go bananas. Right. I don't have a problem with the concept that we need access to good medical care for everybody. And I think that it is something that's really important and we need to figure out how to make it work better because it's not working well in, in its current format for everyone. And there's a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse in the current system. And I think there's, there's room for improvement. Now, would I say turn it all over to the government based on what I've seen spending my year in government? Uh, you could do that if you want a Soviet era experience in 10 years, right? right? But I wouldn't recommend that you do that. I think that if you look at the VA and other folks who have been responsible for the healthcare of our veterans and the failures, systemic failures that have gone on there for way too long. Um, those are prime examples of without the right kind of synergies and public private and accountability and transparency. Um, you'll keep getting a story out of the government side of this is hard and, and it took too long and we have rules and you'll just hear excuse after excuse after excuse. That's what they're programmed to do. Right. And they don't know any different in many cases, right? So by tying it together with the incentives of some of the private side and the innovation and quite frankly, in many cases, one side of the equation is very mission driven, has a big heart and is trying to do the right thing. The other side can be a little, you know, greedy and, and is doing it. If you can, but they get things done. If you can blend these two together to get a better outcome for Joe Citizen, I'm all for it, right? Right, right, right. I, I totally, so like, then that is the problem with the social media stuff and everything. Because the minute that I say socialized medicine, people's heads do explode because they go right to Soviet this. And I, and I, I have never advocated for right. a government takeover of resources or an actual socialist situation. It's always a hybrid situation. And my experience is, well, it's more with the ladies that I hang out with because I like nurses. So, <laughs> um, so but my, my experience with them is not just the sexual nature. It's a, you know, I do have to talk to him at some point too. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. Right, right, when, I, All right. when I do, when I do talk to I thought to this them, was a family show. What are you getting me oh, into? Oh, it's a family show. <laughs> when, I, when I do talk to them about deep subjects like healthcare, so the people that are actually hands-on, their goal in life was to be a healthcare practitioner. Right. They have a completely different outlook on the way the system should be run because their main focus is quality of care where the VP, their only focus is bottom line. How are you charging for your care and all of these things, right? So there's this in the hospital setting um, and I've dated nurses because I'm not kidding. I like nurses. They, they're not good. Like, you can't gross a nurse out, right? It's just not a thing. No, they pretty much have seen everything. Right, right. And body-wise, yeah, they're yeah. totally fine with everything. So we're all good. So, <laughs> um, but in my experience with them, there's this big divide in there between the management side and the actual practitioners. Yeah. If you would take the practitioner, the people who have a mindset for quality of care yeah. and put it into the which leads me to you need to take some out of something out of this for-profit model that we're doing because there are people that are getting insanely wealthy in the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. And honestly, those are the, those people are the problem because 
they, most of those people are not hands-on. They are not interested. Once you start running that treadmill where you're making that money, they're more interested in making that money than right. the healthcare. And that, that's a cancer. That's something that's going to eat away at this system. So I would always say that we need a hybrid system. It needs to be a system where there's a floor again, where nobody can fall below this sort of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And then you can pay for more. There's still going to be room for someone to make that then big profits. Just, you know, if, 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 you, if I had my druthers, they're also going to be in a progressive tax plan. Like I'm going to set you up in a situation where I firmly believe the guy who's interested in making money will do the innovation that you're talking about to make more money if you tax him more. Because if you tax him more, he's going to be strapped with these taxes. He's going to have to think better to make more money. So you're going to have to innovate, dude. If you want to be the guy that's got a billion dollars, I'm going to make it harder to make a billion dollars. So go ahead. I don't want to stifle you, but we got to pay for school. We got to pay for everyone you're hiring. So let's do it like this. Like there's got to be an understanding we get to and there's also got to be this thing where people can do math. We throw around words like million and billion, like there's something that is actually similar about millions and billions. No. Millions and billions aren't anywhere near each other. If someone did a visual reference of this is a million ping pong balls and this is a billion, you're talking about a football stadium full of ping pong balls and a bus full of ping pong balls. It's, a, it's not even the same thing in the same realm. So when some guy says that in his 25-year career, he made a billion dollars, I think to myself, you're fucking crook. There's a problem here. Like, and then, then I get people who tell me, why don't you leave it up to the individual to give to charity? Well, obviously that doesn't work because we have 485 billionaires in this country. And if you were someone who was going to give to charity, you would have given long before you got to a billion dollars. So... You know, you, you raise an interesting point. Let me ask a question. Where do you stand in, with regard to, you know, uh, death tax, estate taxes, et cetera, and the use of that to claw back, if you will, back into the government coffers, uh, some of that wealth? I have, that'll go right to your point where government picks winners and losers. And we are not in a, I would ideally like to see a, egalical, you know, society where we don't have greed and we don't, that's not going to happen. That's an idealistic nonsense. That's not going to happen. But I don't see why we have a system that is, it, like I said, watch that Reagan's uh, documentary that's on Showtime because they've set us on this path from the eighties where greed is good, the Gordon Geckos of the world and everything else where essentially if you're born to the lucky sperm club, we're picking winners and we're, we're starting out at, we're making an, you know, an oligarchy out of this situation because people are born with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of wealth, if not billions of dollars worth of wealth. And I don't think that's a thing. I think that if we live in a capitalist society, it should be a society that says, listen, you're born with better, me and you were born with better opportunities than the kids who were born in Richmond Park. We just were, we got better educations, we got better facilities, we had better things to do than those people did. So those are the advantages you have. If, sure. you, if you're also born with a billion dollars, 
I think that stifles innovation. I think that stops a mind from trying to create something that they might have created versus just resting on the fact that I've got this. I've had this talk with my sons. If I don't, I don't play the lottery, but if I did and I won $3 million, I would probably live the exact same life that I live now and never have to worry about money again. Sure. Sort of a thing, right? Yep. If I won $15 million, I would probably do some business things and some stuff like that. If I won $40 million, I wouldn't do anything. There's not, I don't need to do anything anymore. I'm done. I don't have to do a thing. Oh, let's, let's hope that you would do what you love, whatever that I is. Love, I would definitely do what I love. But, and I'm a person that I can tell you, I would definitely give most of that money away. I don't see any reason. And I told my, this is my son who's going to get whatever I've got when I go. Sure. I, you know, I, I go, that would be the, the, the point where you go, dad, are we rich? And I go, well, you ain't rich. You don't have anything. And I'm going to make sure it's that way. I would like to make sure that you can get the basic things. Can you always get healthcare? Can you always get an education? And then beyond that, man, it's up to you. And I'm telling you from a personal standpoint, you'll be a happier person if you produced it yourself. I know people that have money. Some of them aren't happy people. So if you can produce... If you can work the jigsaw puzzle and figure it out, you'll be a happier person whether you've got $500,000 or $500 million. So I am all for, um, I'm for like drastic, you know, like I hate to say it, like people freak out. But like when it comes to that stuff, if you've got uh, $300 million that you're going to leave to a child, I'm fine with you. You can only leave them 10. The rest of it goes to society. It goes to, listen, whatever you made out of that, you're dead now. You can't take it with you. You're paying society back for the for the grand life that you lived. They're, your children are going to take ten million dollars and all the resources, right? They're gonna the children of Walmart got to keep the Walmart stores. They just couldn't keep the cash. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, you know, it, that's so that's where I fall on that stuff, right? No, it's 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 interesting, and I I think that it opens a lot of you know questions around philosophies of you know systems of wealth and transfer of wealth and creation of wealth, right? And and what really led up to that, to some of your questions that you're asking, right? If you've made, uh, if you're a successful organization, the real question is, who do you think made you successful, right? And that comes back to what are all the stakeholders? And when you look at more than just the shareholder and return for the shareholder, what does the rest of the world look like? I do think that we've turned a corner and I can tell you even interviewing and, you know, I've, I've had thousands of employees over the years, but many of the people are driven by different things, right? Some still want to make a lot of money. Some want to change the world. I'm seeing a lot more people who would like to work 37.5 to 40 hours a week and do the best they can during that time frame to change the world but their time is worth a lot to them and they're not interested in overtime or working hard on a project or doing different things. And that's okay. That's what they want to do. Um, I still see other people who are more mercenaries, right. And they're going to chase the cash and, yep. and you know, get on the hamster wheel and, you know, do the 80s stuff like the, some of the rest of us did for as long as we could. But I think I, the I, latter are going to be let down. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, 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 
happiness is not, I think you just summed it up. I'm, there's a lot of people we probably both know that have money that are absolutely miserable. Um, and they were probably miserable before they had the money. That's another story. But in the end, it doesn't buy happiness. It can rent short-term things, but it doesn't buy happiness. And the only true happiness you get is from helping other people and making a difference. So to your point, this leads to an interesting question back. So if I'm Bill Gates and Melinda Gates and I'm Warren Buffett and I've transferred a bunch of my wealth into these foundations, should the government now take away all the perceived good or my wishes for what I wanted to do with what I built over my life? Is the government going to do a better job with that or with the foundation? Well, I mean, I think the, the way that taxes work, you're still free to do that, to be honest with you. Like, I hear that, that, that to me, that almost seems like a fault. If, if you're, let's take someone who does not a philanthropist, right? Like a Jeff Bezos, who's really not doing, he's pretty much, abs, abs, you know, uh, amassing a mass amount of wealth at this point. In he will absolutely, you can mark my words. If that man's organization isn't broken up, at least AWS peeled off the, you know, the server and business pieces sure. stripped. It, that's going to be coming on an express train. I, I'd be shocked if it doesn't. Right. Well, let, let, I mean, to, to, just to answer the question though, your taxes, taxes are always a after the fact thing, right? So I make my money for 2020 and then I get my tax bill when I go sit down with my accountant sort of situation. Sure. So if during that year I was to take 80% of my billion dollars that I made and I did all these philanthropist things, I was free to still do all the, put all the, you know, Bill Gates can build all the toilets he wants to in Africa because he still had that money before the government had it, right? Yeah. And then I'm only going to be taxed on the 20% that I ended up profiting, you know, that I didn't spend on things that are charity to begin with. So this argument that, you know, the good deeds that they would do would be taken away because the government, the government would be taken out of the equation if I did the good deeds before I amassed the fortune to begin with. But this is, gets back to the fundamental question in my mind of, of who's a better Robin Hood, right? So if we look at the old way of doing things, did charitable organizations fulfill part of that? And over time, did, you know, was that not done right? Or, or does the government do a bad thing? Or realistically, are we better off having a hybrid in those environments as well so that you've got, uh, you know, dual control and a dual path, to, kind of a, a bimodal focus on what to, how to re-enter that money back into society. I just, I find that to be fascinating, you know, from the standpoint of people that have truly worked hard to create these things and they might have a vision for whether it's, uh, you know, curing disease in the world or starving children or uh, lengthening life or doing whatever you know, to, to, to put a cap on those visions um, is something that you really have to think about because they did earn the money, but they did earn that money with, as part of a larger ecosystem. I love how you have the tank behind you. That's, that's awesome. And it's powerful. You know, what did the rest of that world look like? And occasionally it's going to need more water, more rocks, more food, more, whatever the foundational infrastructure is to that. And what do we owe to put back? So I guess I wouldn't say that either one is, is necessarily the right answer, but what's the right mix and how do you govern that? You know, that's the yeah, answer. Well, okay. So, and I mean, I, I have like thought deeply about these things because I do see, um, I've watched uh, like the documentaries on Bill Gates and stuff and some of the stuff that he's done. And it's always crazy that they take a guy like that who has decided for himself, no one has put their foot down to make this guy do these things. And he has done massive projects to bring water to places that don't have, like he's done billions and billions of dollars worth of good 
with yep. his money, right? But if, like I said, if you if he was somebody who was doing that, we've got we've got tax deferred situations like Roth accounts and stuff like that. There could be a way that you could put something in an account to divert it from taxes, so you're not it's not taken out that way. If you do something where like. Uh, you know, in some of these like uh, Denmark and Sweden and stuff like that, where the highest tax rate is in the 90 percentile range and everything else, yeah. you know, and everything like another wonder of the world of podcasts, people don't understand things that they have opinions on and they need to sit down and you can find a podcast on how taxes are done. People don't understand when someone says, hey, listen, I, I think if you make a billion dollars a year, you should enter a 92 percent tax bracket. And people are like, oh my God, do you want to take 92% of his money? That's not what I said. Taxes are done where the first 100,000 that you make is like this. The second 100,000 is this. The, the next 500,000 is this. So it's stepped up and stepped up and stepped up. By the time you get to a couple million dollars a year, then you're in that 92% range. And like I said, I believe that if you started to implement more and more progressive tax plans and the government works. I mean, for first you got to move towards, I think the biggest thing that the government needs to do is, and they don't want to do it because it's the strings, they're going to cut the strings for the puppeteer, is they need to move to a publicly funded election system so that people that vote have the power, not corporations. You need to take the, the funding part away from getting people reelected and put it in the pans of the people. So if you do that, and then we start to have a thing where, the government is not catering or coddling business the way that we do. There's plenty of penalties. I hear this argument that like, well, business will just leave. We're a consumer-based country right here. We yeah. buy, we've only got 4% of the world's population. We buy 30% of the damn goods on the planet. So if, if you said to a corporation, oh, you don't like the tax plan, you're going to leave the country. That's fine. But by now, don't buy, don't don't sell anything in this country anymore because you can't if you can't put into the system then you can't take out sort of a situation no one's going to leave this is the atlas shrugged argument right where if you tax wealthy people too much they'll just set the world down and then they won't do it anymore that's complete hokum that's that's nonsense logic that's going on i believe that if you progressively tax these people they will innovate ways to do things like we talked about earlier where the real estate industry is now streamlined and I can do it so much more efficiently and so much better. They will come up with better systems to make more amount of money. Every businesses are easily convinced to get rid of by data to get rid of employees. If you go to Amazon, you say, listen, I got a way for you to fully automate your complete business. You can let everybody go home. I've got an AI system that will run the whole thing and robotics that will take care of everything. You don't need to have one employee. They will jump at that thing because employees are a liability. They fall down, they sue you, they need healthcare, they need time off, they need all this other stuff. If you just have machines doing it all, you don't need anything. What are we all gonna do for work when that day comes? No, you're, you're asking a great question. And when you talk about AI and ethics, which is what you're sort of addressing, you know, do we need to be conscious of supplementing that labor market or making sure that you're taking care of it? So think about this. 
if government is currently funded very much through payroll taxes and you have fewer people and more robots on the payroll, how do those robots pay taxes? How exactly does that work? So again, you're going to see that technology quickly outpaces the ability of government to even know. They can get their shoes on and run around the world faster than the government even knows if it's day or night, right? <laughs> so the, the government's always chasing because it doesn't innovate. It stagnates. It uses. It, it does create some base safety things. And don't get me wrong. Government is, is good. Uh, in the right size, but efficient government's better, right? From oh, that so you always hear me talk about how do we, because the same people who are telling you we got no money and we're broke, uh, we're not broke. We're misspending the money that we have. I had a front row. Agree, 100%. So, and, you know, when you talk about progressive taxes in Illinois, I'm happy to talk about a progressive tax as soon as you start executing against all the savings that people have already identified for you, and they won't because of the entrenched interests in the form of, organizations that are all part of a giant system in this particular state. That is where the corruption factor comes into government. We are in arguably the most corrupt state in the union. And it's very frustrating, right? To watch these things and to see that it's nauseating at times, right? That's where publicly funded elections come in. Well, you know, I think think it would be interesting, but I don't think we can have it both ways, right? So I think if we're going to talk about progressive taxes, how do we talk about accountability within government? I mean, I see an absence of it all the way around the horn. If I see one more ridiculous settlement for something that was completely preventable, uh, you know, from from a public servant, I'm going to go, what are you doing, right? I mean, these things are not only, what we're seeing lately is not only morally outrageous, it's financially outrageous, you know, secondary, far secondary to what should have never happened. But there's no accountability on behalf of many of the people who are doing these things because the system is set up to protect them and they have a contract for it. And all of the things that I'm telling you are a problem are why you don't want more big government. You want better right. government. Right. You want to right. automate things. I want to teach more kids. I want more high-speed internet to their house. I want them to be able to see their doctor, their social worker, and the other things. But I don't want to be paying you know, $100,000 a year for someone to stare at a tape reel in Springfield because that's what they've always done. The challenge that we have is it's all written to continue to keep those that machine well-oiled. And I don't think people understand that in the state. Right, right. Well, okay, so that would lead me back to the AI thing, running everything, because I'm a firm believer in, so socialism on paper is, sounds good. The problem happens as soon as you sprinkle people into the socialism. (laughs) Once you get, right, once you get people that are in charge of it, then all of a sudden you've got Putins and stuff like that that are worth, we, no one knows what Putin is worth. He might be the wealthiest person on the planet for all we know, because government took over resources and essentially so did he. So socialism truly is a, is a good plan because it doesn't let anyone fall through the cracks. It creates another floor and everything else. The problem is, is once you get somebody who gets power, they live in a palace and it's like, hey, wait a minute, that doesn't fit the socialism plan that you live in a palace and then they live in a palace. So absolute power, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. absolutely, Right. So, but if you could get AI to, I guarantee you, if you took, we have 50 States in this country and you took one of them and said, listen, we're going to take all the humans out of this situation and we're going to run the whole budget by computer. It would find massive, massive waste and massive people that weren't doing their jobs and everything else. Like we've got all kinds of computer and automation that is automating car factories 
to make profits. We need to automate the government so that we can cut out. I can send all those people home, no problem. And I'm telling you what, the general public will have no problem sending all the Congress home. They, they, for the most I think there's a lot of contempt for the yes, shenanigans right, and the right. BS that have gone on. But Bill, I'm not even suggesting, hey, give me my money back, right? I'm suggesting, hey, reallocate these dollars where they can make a difference in healthcare and education. Remember how we talked about social determinants of health? If we invest more on that end, we have fewer bad things coming out the back end. Let me tell you the other thing that you learn fairly quickly when you start to look at uh, societal departments, if you will, when you look at the state of Illinois and how you support society, you've got good citizen track and you've got unfortunate citizen track, right? Which is one has led a fairly normal life, uh, you know, and has been very lucky and privileged to use the right term where they had a good education and they got a driver's license and they went on to school and, you know, they got married and they had a marriage license, they had whatever. You've got other families where somebody's in the department of corrections, you've got DCFS, there's been all kinds of social problems and things that went on. And the government is trying to serve all of these things. And you know what? Some of these yeah. are significantly underfunded. Oh, and, right. and, and you've got other areas that there's tremendous amounts of waste. What I'm suggesting is exactly what I think you're, you're saying is we want better outcomes. I just want more accountability. And I think the most of the people that I talk to, especially during my time in state government, most do want to do that. The system isn't set up to do that, right? Right. It's, it's set up to protect itself, to insulate itself, and to continue to grow itself. And you, you're just like the toll booths were temporary. They've been there forever. Right. You brought up earlier, right? These things don't go away. Once you lose a freedom or put a tax in place, good luck getting it back. You won't. It's just going to oh, keep right. going. Right. And I'm, I'm a fan of having things the right size. I have hope that with the data, that with intelligence wrapped around the data, we can make better use of things. But don't you dare come to me and ask me for more money when you're wasting all of the money today. And I think that's the outrage that most people feel about what we're currently in. And I was really relieved. I, you want to talk about a vindication uh, of, of Illinois voters saying, no way I'm sending more money to Springfield, right? Look at what just happened with progressive tax. These the taxpayers, even though they're fools enough to keep reelecting the same clown carnival that keeps giving us the same circus that Illinois has. I'm living in Florida now, but the, the reality is the disaster that is Illinois and that will probably require some sort of federal intervention at some point is because of the the situations that you see this right. you want to continue to feed this you can't be surprised by what we will get so when i hear people oh we need the progressive tax you don't even understand you don't have the data to see how tremendously mismanaged the current system is right. and don't be a fool enough to think that throwing more money at this fixes it it is systemically broken you address the broken piece first then you fill the cup so okay so what if it was structured and i thought it was structured more like the the where the they weren't. The, the, what if the situation was? Well, pro, like, so if they if they laid the, the were transparent, laid the data out, and said, "This is the current revenue for the state right now. We don't want to take one dime more. We just want to take it from different places, right?" So, like, my understanding of the fair tax that was proposed in Illinois was that people that made under one hundred fifty thousand dollars were actually going to get a tax reduction because you're that that tier in the rate was going to be less but then the people that made over that and then the people that stepped up twice more after that were going to be taxed more right so my situation is is i i understand that it's a pipe dream to think that 
our government is ever going to take away the loopholes from the super wealthy. The super wealthy will never let go of those loopholes because they, they create a situation where the ultra wealthy actually end up paying no taxes and they, they'll never let that go. But, you know, like when Warren Buffett says stuff like, I pay less taxes than my secretary does and stuff like that, there's a problem in that situation, right? So if they said, we're not going to take one more dime because your issue was, you want me to give you more money and you're already mismanaging, which I totally agree they're mismanaging. But we won't take a dime more. We just want to take it from different sources. We want to, to change the revenue stream. Well, you want to waste other people's money faster is what I hear you saying when you say that. Well, no, because the, the bigger plan for me would be that if I take everybody that makes, uh, you know, we're, we're also, you know, we talk about the, uh, the state tax rate. It's, it's in the single digits of percentage. It's, it's so what is it, 4.7 or something like that? It's, it's, not, it's not the federal tax where we're looking at, like, you know, we're, we're taking sure. 20%. But right. so the, the data that I saw, and you can, you know, tell me that I'm wrong, was that there's 32 states that have progressive tax plans in them. And in those 32 states, they were less likely over the years that they've had the progressive tax plan to raise taxes with the progressive tax plan than the states that had flat taxes. Yeah, I think we'd have to use, uh, that's an interesting thought, right, to look at the data. I would expand the pie, though, to ask to see other pieces. What are, what's the percentage that they're paying in their property taxes? We are ridiculously overtaxed in this state around oh, everything yeah, else. Yeah, so, really I think, right. Bill, I'd, Bill, I'd be willing to listen to that, but I'd also say you have to include the whole thing. You have to go through like the whole checkbook, what we pay for all of the things. 10% sales tax in Cook County or whatever it is. I mean, we have a tax on anything that moves here. This state has more taxing bodies. I, it was seven or 8,000 taxing bodies. We have right. library district, road district. We have more people with their hands in your pocket here than any other state in the country as far as the individual taxing bodies. From what I understand, I could be wrong, but at one point we did. What are we doing to continue to use technology or even common sense to say not every town in every area needs to have all these redundant structures for providing services. You can pool these just like businesses do or others and say, you know what, this is the Will County Road District and we can take care of the roads in all the municipalities with this same, you know, with this many supervisors, managers or whatever that structure is, you, everybody pays into the pot, you can get that stuff back. That's what people do when they create economies of scale. Government doesn't understand that, isn't incented to do that, and in a state like Illinois, creates a complete voting machine out of all of those jobs, and then it continues to, you know, kind of perverse the incentives that, that, that make people want to contribute toward it or even live here. Look at the number of people moving out. Look at what's happening to this state, right? You know, it's, it's really unfortunate. We both grew up here. I've, I've lived and worked in many different places, but I've always ended up coming back. I love the area. I love the people. What I don't like is the reputation and the ridiculousness that I hear coming out of people's mouths that think that somehow if I don't want to pay more taxes, that I don't like policemen, firemen, and teachers. I love them. I think they're great. I thank God for them every yeah. day. They've been a big part of my life. I'm not suggesting you take anything from them. I'm suggesting you honor what you told them in their pension and keep their money in the pension bucket, not fill holes for your other projects with it. I'm suggesting that you be a good steward of the dollars you're being given before you ask someone else for more dollars. I don't think that's asking for much. I really don't. Right. I know. And I agree. 
And I, I think I feel, I think I feel that most people would like, and you know, like I don't ever want to, I hate that situation where someone wants to disclose like what they make and stuff like that. But I can't ever get upset when someone says, I got a buddy of mine that's, that's a, that's a pretty high dollar attorney works for a pretty big firm and he makes, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of 400 and some odd thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. He, when he gets to April, cause he, I think he makes like right around, let's let's just say for math, like 480, right. Is what he makes. Right. Sure. So when he gets a, when he gets a quarter of the way through the year, he's done paying into social security because he meets the cap, right? right? He's at the 128,000 mark. Yep. He stops paying into social security and he'll, he'll say to me, he goes, he goes, I'm telling you, you know, I've got a great education. I, I got lucky. I got for this great firm. We make a bunch of money. My life is fantastic. He goes, honestly, Bill, I'm the last guy in the world that come April 1st needs a freaking raise, but I get a 6% raise on April 1st because my check gets that much bigger. Right. So this guy's making a fantastic living and then boom, this first paycheck in April, he gets more money. There's a problem when you've got old people that are barely making ends meet through social security because there's a, the, the cap thing to me was an absolute ludicrous thing. The, the way that our government and our tax system is structured is the more you make, the more you can afford the high dollar attorney to find the loopholes to pay less. So I'm really not asking this guy knows that he's not a regular Joe, right? He knows that the amount of money he's making, it's phenomenal. This guy works 20 years. He's got $10 million. And you know what? The higher amount of money that you make, the less portion of that money you put back into the economy anyway. So honestly, you're not a guy that's, that's helping the economy that much. If, if I had you know, to pick and someone said, all right, you can create... 10 people that make $50,000 a year, one guy that makes $500,000 a year, do whatever's best for the economy, Bill. The, the 10 people that make 50 grand a year is better for the economy because they're going to spend 90% of their money back into the economy. This guy's going to spend about 25% of his money back in the economy. The rest he's going to pocket. So he understands he's wrapped his mind around this whole thing. So when I say a progressive tax plan, I really feel like it's better. I don't think that it's, it's not a, not a vindictive thing it's not a thing where i'm saying hey you've got it so good you need to give more it's sure. a thing that says what's better for the economy what's better for the butcher and the candlestick maker and the the carpenter and everybody else you know what's better it's better if the guy that makes 80 grand a year keeps most of his money because he's going to spend his money yeah. and it's better if the guy that that makes five hundred thousand dollars a year is taxed at 50 percent by the time he gets there and he never sees that cap in, in social security because then grandma, who can barely afford to, to get the cat food that she's trying to get for the one kitty cat she's got. Like it, it, it just doesn't make any sense that we live in a society that favors this. The, 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 the table's tilted in their direction. You know? Yeah, I think you're, you're really talking about income inequality, right, in, yep. uh, as a concept. And, and yep. I understand and I certainly do feel like there are ways to solve it. Um, there are ways that we can continue to work on it and there are things we should do, right, uh, to, to address that. The one question I have for you, because it intrigues me, is the same, you know, organization,
organizations that want a progressive tax, let's take the proposals that were on the table here back yep. in Illinois, um, and you look at, do you really think they were going to leave the cap where it was if you have 17 or 18 billionaires and they continue to move out? And they, it's like hunting big game. As the big game leaves the preserve, uh, how quickly do you think that button starts to slide down? And I'm not saying it shouldn't, maybe for the exact reasons you had, but I think people didn't vote for it because they know that's exactly what would happen with the same group of jokers you've got in Springfield. That, that's exactly what would happen. Right, right. I, I, I get that uh, 100%. And that's that. That'd be like uh, that's like the, the the situation when the the gun rights guy says like, well, look at Chicago; they've got all kinds of gun laws, but then they don't. You know, we live in a free society, so you can move wherever you want to. You can go to Gary, Indiana, and get a trunk full of guns, and then go back to Chicago. So, right, the guy that the guy that's making you know billions of dollars and decides, well, I don't want to pay the taxes for Illinois, and moves out to go to Indiana to pay less taxes but still does business in Illinois. I, you know, I don't know. There's got to be some sort of way around that situation or a federal way to say that, you know, we've got such a difference in, in every state, right? Where if you take the states like Chicago and New York and California, we've got these big metropolises and people tend to think if they're on the right side of the political persuasion, that these are the, the, the places with the you know, the, the brown people that, 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 that are the leeches on society or whatever like that. that I hope, I hope there's fewer people thinking like that. Yeah, but. there's not. So, but what really goes on is if you look at these red states, New York City puts $7 into the federal budget and takes $1 out of it, right? Or New York State. So yeah. even though they are full of diversity and everything else, they are actually funding Kentucky and Alabama and Arkansas and Mississippi. Right. Who are taking out more than they They're taking out weight because there's no industry there, right? right. So right. those states aren't taking in revenue because they're run red, where they're not raising taxes and stuff like that. They become environments that are very, very conducive to big business. The whole thing that you're describing is unsustainable in the end because if you don't have a thriving, like the ecosystem that's behind me, the thriving middle class is what's going to, my metaphor would always be if there was a disease that came along that killed all of the people who own Walmart, Walmart had to close the doors down, would the middle class survive? Yes, the middle class would go to Target and buy their shit there. If there was a virus that came along and killed the entire middle class, could Walmart survive? No, I, I think that it's it's interesting. The ecosystem analogy gets back to the whole stakeholder thing like we were talking about. How do you make sure you have transparency, equity, and that change is going to occur, but change has to occur in incremental ways along a spectrum, right? Because radical change usually is going to be, hey, I don't like change, right? We, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. People are going to put up the stiff arm convincing people that there is a larger picture to look at just like you're doing over your shoulder and that we all play a role in making sure that that ecosystem is sustainable, can thrive in the future for our kids and their kids. It's an important discussion. You know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, right, Bill? Yep. And you're not going to be able to afford everybody to kind of wake up to, to see that. But it doesn't mean we can't keep using the data to draw a picture and say, hey, but do you really think that's fair or do you think that's right? Right. So we can we can go back to that well, it's it's frustrating because people don't want to hear it. 
Right. Well, the fair thing is the thing that, that, that I'm, I'm a capitalist also. I have made money sure. for every presidency that ever was. I, I am, I'm considered a quadriplegic and I still make money. Like I am out yeah. there making money. But in this fair thing, like I, I don't, you know what? Life's not fair. I broke my neck. That was not fair. Like that, that's not a fair right. thing. So you know what? Toughen up, buttercup, because things aren't going to be fair. You're going to have to do what you're going to have to do. But right. can I at least have a system that says you were born into a system where they could have, not you or me, but you could afford to go to Yale or Princeton or Harvard. You met all the connections. You got out of there. You make millions of dollars a year. How much, at some point, someone has to ask how much is enough? Because we can easily go back to the Jesse Ventura thing. We know how much is too little, right? We know how much you can't, you can't survive on less than this. But how much is enough when you've got people that, and I mean, I'll, I can find almost anybody on any part of the political spectrum, except for when you get to that really wacky, like libertarian that screams, you know, taxation is theft and all this other nonsense. And I'm honestly, right. most of those people that I know that are screaming that on, on social media, they don't have fucking jobs anyway. They're, they're, <laughs> they're living in their parents' basement. They're, they're out, they're mom, whatever they are. But, you know, taxes are a fact of life, man. You do drive on the road. You, you, you want the fire department to show up and your house burns down, sure. all the other yeah. stuff. So, but can we at least have a system that says, if you are lucky enough to draw this amount of money, this fancy of a living out of it, then you're required to pay into it. And it's not a, re I shouldn't say it's a requirement. You have a stake in putting into this system. It's working out so splendidly for you. You should be sending, when, listen, when you climb the ladder of success, you send it back down, right? Yes. And whether or not that, and by the way, I am a big fan and, you know, you start to think about all of a sudden when you're 50, don't ask me why, it's hardly old and I don't feel old in the slightest, but you start to think about things like your legacy. What do you want these things to be? I might have froze up here, yeah. but what, what do you want these things to be? I'm going to stop and start the camera again. But the reality is, what do you want these things to be? And, you know, who do you want to be remembered as? And I think most of us want to be remembered as someone who helped other people, did the best they could, had flaws. I mean, people have great stories to tell of my flaws, but I, you know, they're, that's what makes me who I am, right? So, you know, the, the reality is, I think we have to continue to recognize and reward that behavior. And I do believe that the next uh, group of folks who are coming up here, this next generation is going to have a much more balanced view of these things because I think they saw how out of skew things were. Right. I don't know how successful we are in chasing the bubble that's already out of skew, but I do think that we can trim some of that back and that we, this next generate as much as there are certain traits about the next generation that completely want to make me rip every hair out of my head. Uh, you know, there are other things there that are just absolutely beautiful. Meaning I, that I hope they care, I they do, care I, about their, they care about their fellow person, but Bill, you have more hustle in your little pinky than, you know, a, a good chunk of, of many of the entitled folks that are out there in that generation that, you know, I get it. And I, I realize that it's a different world that they've been born into. And I do think that they, you know, they've got their work cut out on them. And I do worry that it's going to be harder for them to even have the kind of living and lifestyle that you and I have had. Right. So, you know, we have to look at it that way, but well, to look at education, I mean, just yeah. the education that they're going to pay for is it's in huge. pain. Yeah. So, and I, I want, 
you know, people that listen to this thing, like, I, I, I hate this uh, mamby-pamby, uh, you know, image of a liberal that's, and I'm a liberal, I'm a liberal and I'm a progressive, and I'm not, you know, at all bashful about saying so. Yeah. I, I am in a way be, only because of the big picture. And I think that it is far more sustainable of a system to do it that way, where we don't have, you know, if we have these mass, mass, mass wealth mountains that one guy's sitting on top of, and all these people who are peasants, the let them eat cake sort of situation, we're going to get to a point, people don't seem to realize it, if you pick your head up off of your own little world and you look around at what happened with apartheid in South Africa, the, all the wealthy people in South Africa live in places with huge walls and hired security because they said, let them eat cake for long enough that the people said, ah, we'll just come kill you motherfuckers and take your shit. And it's, you did. can't build a wall. You cannot build a wall high enough to protect you from right. that anger and frustration when that boiling, boiling point hits and the tipping point hits, I should say. But when it reaches that frenzy, you're absolutely right. I do believe that we'll be on a, a path, and you can tell from this conversation. I, you know, I'm definitely a moderate independent in terms of the way that I think, and I shared a little bit with this of this with you the other night. I'm trying to be more conservative on some views. I want to. I guess I'm more of a value play. I I don't mind making an investment when I know there's a return, but don't come yeah. to me when you're wasting the stuff and then tell me you need more to waste. I'm not buying. Right. No, so, right, right, but right, as soon as, as soon right. as you're willing to partner with us and be transparent and show that you're not just rewarding cronies in your crony system and that this truly is for beneficial outcomes for everybody, right? Not just the people who happen to be members of this or whatever else, then that's inclusive, right? That rises. That's the kind of, you know, tide that lifts everybody's boat. I'm open to doing it, but I think that it was, it was amazing to me that I think the Illinois voters gave a resounding, I don't trust you. And now there's a real checkmate going on. I don't think people understand the magnitude of the checkmate that's in place now. There's probably not a whole lot of options aside from radical cuts and raising everybody's taxes. And those are not well, going to right. So that would lead me to my question is, and this is what I said. So I looked at the fair tax thing and I voted for it. Okay. And I said, I voted for it because I'm like, you guys are not thinking long game. The long game, the, the short game is we're either going to take, do it progressively, or we're just going to say, well, that didn't work. We're going to raise the tax rate for the entire state to change the revenue system. And then the only people that are going to make out in this situation are the people that can take advantage of the loopholes because they're going to raise the rate and then the, the middle class guy is going to get screwed. So, Bill, let me, ch let me challenge you a little bit. The same system today that can't handle that money and spends more than it takes in and ridiculously to, to an extreme level and continues to do it and cry that they don't have money, if you give them more money and they repeat the same behavior without fixing those core infrastructural issues that are going on, yep. what makes you think that's going to lead to a sustainable long game? I don't, I don't, know. I don't think it's going to work. Game. Right. The you're telling me that grabbing somebody else's bucket and pouring it into the bucket with holes all over it today is going to lead to more water in the oh, bucket. I'm no. telling you it won't until you fix the holes. Yeah. Well, so right. You're, you're saying challenge. I agree with you hundred percent. I think that the corruption and the, 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 the spending on the, the, I think that you know, like the AI situation needs to go in there and find out what are we spending the money on that? That that's the wrong thing, you know, as far as it goes. And I can point to some stuff. 
when Walmart came to New Lenox, they gave them a seven-year tax moratorium on Walmart. What are you doing? Yeah, I don't think, I don't agree. That's not a struggling uh, entrepreneur. That is crony capitalism. That's not, I'm not a big fan of those types of deals for an existing flourishing business, which is already known for coming into town, lowering the prices to the degree that they're going to drive every mom and pop under. And that, I don't know if you've done it this year, but we made a point to spend our money. We were just in, I happened to be up here, you know, today instead of Florida, but we went to downtown and we spent money at the shops. We did a bunch of stuff. We were in downtown Frankfurt last weekend. Most of the gifts we're given this year are coming from small businesses because I just refuse to continue to spend, you know, money with the, the these giant organizations so because I, so many I, of the small guys have gotten hurt. I'm already, I already went, I went nuclear on that one. So years ago I had that exact same thought, right? I'm not going to, I have hardly ever been in a Walmart but I just don't like it because it's like kind of gross and dirty. But uh, Walmart's are kind of disgusting. But um, I was like, all right, I'm not going to shop at – and I would look into businesses. Like I wouldn't shop at Target. I don't shop at Walmart, no Kmart, none of those places at all. I would try and go mom and pop and everything else. When Walmart came to, uh, to um, New Lenox, my tire guy was like, I'm done for because I cannot compete – with the tires he, can't, he can't get his tires at that price no, no he, can't, he can't he can't do it all this other stuff and i felt bad because this guy he the the reason i started going to the guy was he cut me a square deal i went to a a bigger tire outlet and they wanted to like balance things and all this other crap and they were going to charge me way more money than this guy was so i stuck with this guy and everything else so i wouldn't shop at any of those places since we've entered into the last uh four or five years now I said, fuck it. Everything I buy, I'm going to buy from Amazon now. This thing is not going to change unless it blows up. So now we've got this situation. So what are you doing? Pouring more gas on the fire? Yep. Just put gas on the fire. Let it go. Just burn the fire down. Because listen, we did the thing for years where we were trying to stop Walmart, which was actually a retail store that actually had jobs and everything else in, a, in an area. that So they were doing this thing, right? And that didn't work. People just couldn't stop buying the cheap crap that came out of Walmart. Now this thing comes along. This guy pays nothing into the federal government at all. He's making money that makes Walmart look like chump change. I don't know what to do. I, I, I'm going to ban that. I'm going to ban shopping at, at, at Amazon. Nobody else is going to do it. And then what? And Amazon, people don't understand how diabolical Amazon is. Um, Amazon will open up their marketplace to you. If you own a business, let you sell your goods on Amazon. Then they do a data analysis, a market analysis of your business. And if they can make a profit, they'll run you out of business. So one thing I think you would really enjoy the data. They are, by the way, they're a data company masquerading as a, as a retailer. And yes, a yes. They're a data company, but, but get this. Here's the advantage of being able to do a search, right? And get results. I'll see 10, 15, 20 things returned at once. Go and ask Alexa about a product that you want and tell me a time when she recommends something other than what Amazon's choice is. Oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 I'm sure, right. Because you're only gonna hear one voice at a time and what people don't understand is that natural language processing, interacting with machines and doing that, 
it's great if I say set a timer, do whatever. If I want to go do research or if I, you're only going to get one answer at a time back out of a speaker. And if the company that's been listening to all your conversations knows your past three years purchasing things and knows that Bill's about to order more paper towels, they might just suggest the ones that they're now branding or making. Absolutely. No. So I think, Jack, I think that we're, we're past it all, man. I think we are, but there's some good nuggets in there. I hope it was good for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I'll, what should call it? Uh, I want to do this again, though, because I do want to talk about the election and stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be hacking this thing to, like, get people to subscribe to my channel. Yeah. I never talk about that shit during it. So if I'll, I'll, to- I'll hype it up. I'll be your hype man on the back end. So when we get I, it out there, I'll say, hey, it was a lot of fun to talk with Bill. You know, obviously my, in, you know, my comments on this are Jack King, Jack only, not Jack yeah, as a representative I, of the state I, of I, Illinois or Jack as representative of his current employer or any yep, of that. Yep. I appreciate your time. I really do. Thanks, man. No problem. Hey, truly, I enjoyed the conversation. It was fun. I could talk to you for hours, especially if I had a drink in my hand, but I don't yeah. want to be looking like an idiot. I'll talk to you later. Sometime soon. Thanks. All right, bye-bye.